welcome to the podcast. Oh, sure. Like, it's not the last line. out of context, but if you've watched this movie, that has to be the choice, right? Yeah, sure. Last yeah, line sure. is the first line. Yeah, well, yes, and yeah. thank you. I like this that. This podcast is a direct sequel to Escape from L.A. It's the it finally. <laughs> podcast. Yeah. The conclusion to the Snake Plissken trilogy. It's Escape yeah. from New York, Escape from L.A., and Blank Check's episode on Escape from L.A. What if Carpenter now basically semi-retired, was like, I'm coming out of retirement. Kurt's with me. We're doing an Escape from New York, uh, the third in the trilogy. This time Snake has a podcast. That's the angle. (laughs) That's what we're doing now. I'd lay that at about like 49%. Yeah. Uh, I mean, in a full circle trilogy way, having two guys from LA, two Mm. guys from New York. Ooh. In mm. like the hangover part three when they go back to Vegas. Yes. Oh, right. <laughs> that spirit. That famous scene. I told myself I'd never come back here again. <laughs> Is that what they do in the hangover part three? I've they never must. seen the hangover part three. Yeah. Oh, they gotta David. go. David. Right. I I can't believe I still haven't gotten you to watch the hangover part three. I <laughs> Like much of America, I, I tapped out after I've, two. I've spent like all nine years of our friendship trying to convince <laughs> you. Like, it's not good, but it's the only one of the three I like. <laughs> I, uh, when it, the, the day I could buy it uh, streaming online, I, I did because I it broke my heart that I missed it when it came out in theaters because what I was reading in the reviews, uh, I, I had to get my eyes on it. It's fascinating. Why, what am I missing? I, it is here? fascinating. And uh, if you like uh, the late 80s, early 90s, like action comedy thrillers. I do. And just want to revisit it maybe from nine years ago. <laughs> yeah, also, it, but, but if you like The Hangover or The Hangover Part 2, I strongly encourage you to avoid watching it. Because <laughs> <laughs> it, it's, it's the way you described it is it's pretty mad at the existence of these movies, right? Correct. Like, it's just sort of furious. <laughs> and right. the audience for liking them. <laughs> right. <laughs> it's like, you fucking pigs, you pieces of shit. You wanted a third one of these? Fucking suck on my ass. <laughs> um, it's a fascinating, self-loathing movie. And and look, this is, I feel like today we're talking about a sequel that people have had a hard time trying to figure out in various ways, right? I think a, a giant question with this movie is, uh, or has been for years, uh, did Carpenter just totally lose the thread or is this movie functioning as a form of self-parody, right? I don't think those are the only two ways it could be interpreted, but I feel like that's often the question here. Is yeah, he they're just not like, necessarily mutually exclusive either. I agree, but I sure, feel like the right. way I've always heard people talk about this movie is either it fucking sucks, it's a mess, it's like a disgrace to the original, he totally lost it, or... It's like a very kind of savvy, self-aware sort of kind of sequel. Ab- Not a sequel about sequelizing, but it's almost like a Gremlins 2. Yeah, I think a, it's A quieter Gremlins 2. I do, measures. Yeah. I do too. Look, I'd never seen this movie before in full. I like it. I don't know if it benefits from me hearing people shit on it for fucking 25 years. <laughs> where my expectations were just in the absolute basement. <laughs> I liked I think, it too. I, I think this too. movie is fun. That's that's yeah, the word I'm gonna this use. This movie's this movie's good. Come this on. Movie is I mean, you fun. know. It has Snake Pliskin in it. I mean, what but the you, fuck else? Right do you on, want? right on. Yep. You gotta give it huge points for that. 
you have to say it in the voice I just said it though. Where you're like, ah, I like it, right? Like that <laughs> yeah, kind of. Like, I mean, it's kind of fun. I don't know. I mean, it lasted an hour and 40 minutes. <laughs> it did. It's a good runtime. It had opening credits, a movie, and closing credits. Stuff it, happened. I guess that's how, is that how we came out of Phantom Menace talking where like, ah, I liked it, but it's not, it's a different vibe than that. It's not, yeah. it's not the sort of questioning vibe. It's the yeah. sort of like, come on. David, also you have to remember, uh, as, as is story lore in our podcast, uh, when I walked out of Phantom Menace, my initial reaction was best one yet. Right. Right. Uh, you, you, were, you, you put it right at the top. Yeah. I is. said, absolutely. It's the best one. Yeah. It's the best yeah. one they made. Um, whereas I think this movie, people walked out of it and there wasn't that Phantom Menace, like people trying to understand whether or not they liked it. I think people walked out of this and were like, fuck that. Uh, people were very mad at this movie. Introduce our guests. I want to ask them why they picked this one. Cause they, they, they had, they had the choice of many carpenters and, yeah. and this is the one they, they went for. Well, yeah, look, you got to introduce them. I want to ask myself while I picked this one. Hey, I'll, yeah. I'll, look, you have about uh, 45 seconds of intro to start asking yourself some deep questions. <laughs> okay. Because uh, this is Blank Check with Griffin and David. I'm Griffin. I'm David. Very quick and quiet. Yeah. You just yeah. muted. Slipped in like a snake. And I'm Snake. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it is incredible how quiet he is this entire movie. Uh, yeah, uh, and, and it's a loud movie. Uh, it's a very in, loud movie. In, in, in other ways, right. That's why he's yeah. he's speaking at the exact same volume as the first movie, but the first movie's a lot quieter. <laughs> right. right. Yeah. Um, look, it's a podcast about filmographies, directors who have massive success early on in their careers and are given a series of blank checks, make whatever crazy passion projects they want. Sometimes those checks clear and sometimes they bounce, baby. And this is a mini series on the films of John Carpenter. It's called They Podcast. And today we are escaping from L.A. And joining us are two uh, legends of the podcast space, of acting, of comedy, of writing, of many other things, but uh, two, two of the best podcasters in the game, and two of the best podcast guests in the game as well. Uh, from Gorley and Rust, it's Gorley and Rust, Paul Rust, Matt Gorley. Now, David, as you were queuing up, mm. I feel like, Gorley Russ has become your favorite podcast during the pandemic. Huge. It was the thing I heard you talk Aww. about the most. Huge and like me. the one podcast I've ever, no, no fucking backhand to any other podcast, but it's the only podcast I've ever heard you talk about compulsively watching the movies along with. Aww. That's right. I mean, it was one of those perfect confluence things for me where like, I was like, you know, I've never seen a lot of those slasher sequels. So here's an opportunity for me to be a completionist and, you know, have an excuse to watch them and listen to two pals chatting. But it's also that thing of like people will say to me, oh, I like blank check, you know, once in a while. I'm not bragging, but it has happened. Uh, two <laughs> pals oh, yeah, chatting. I watch, I watch a lot of the right. movies. I yeah. I'm one of those people. Hey. Oh, Matt, hey. get yeah. out of here. Shut the fuck up. Shut oh, the fuck well, up. Well, not anymore. That was rude. No, no, thank you. Thank you. Shut the fuck <laughs> up, you hangover three loving kid. <laughs> Paul, let's get out of here, Paul. <laughs> <laughs> no, and and I'll always, you know, and they and and sometimes they even get like, oh, I wish the episodes were longer, blah, blah. Right. And I'm like, yeah, what are you talking about? That's crazy. And that's exactly what I like out of with Gorley and Rust. It's uh. just, you know. Nice long convos about a movie I just watched and I want to think about and I want to hear two buds uh, discuss. So, yeah. Cow. Thank oh, you guys. It's a good thank podcast. You. Yeah. That's very nice. Thank, of you. You. thank uh, you. 
thank you for having us. First of all, sure. Uh, for uh, to 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 Griffin's uh, intro and David's uh, uh, feelings. Uh, holy cow! I just uh, that was so flattering. I had a little lump in my throat. Thank hey, you guys. hey, now that's very kind. Hey, so now. thank you for having us. Yeah, well, th- I mean, the the reason I wind all that up is like David watches all of the Halloween movies for uh, uh, with Gorley and Rust, right? Uh, Friday the 13th and the Freddies. Anyway, but but I think the Halloween series happened before Carpenter won our March Madness competition. I I had to pay for Stitcher. Look, we're not even going to get into it. (laughs) My point here is timeline wise, right? (laughs) Yep. You've been. No, I don't want to bring it up for them. I don't want to. I don't want to dig it up for them right now. Yes, Yes. We've heard fucking hours of Paul and Matt talking about Carpenter and Carpenter-adjacent projects. So when Carpenter wins, and we know we're going to commit to doing Carpenter for five months, like, top of the list, let's throw it out to these two guys, any movie they want, right? And we sort of go, like, assume they won't want to do Halloween because it's well-torn territory Mm -hmm, for them, mm -hmm, but mm -hmm. no idea what they're going to pick outside of that. Now that I've given you three-plus minutes to think about it, Matt, (laughs) and Paul as well, why was this the selection? Well, now I'm worried because I don't fully remember. Uh, Paul, it was a long time ago. Did I? Yeah, because we set ago. this up like the better part of a year ago because we Correct. were originally mm-hmm. supposed to record this in July. And then I remember we like scheduled that months in advance. So it was early this year. But was this my doing that I made this happen for Escape from L.A.? I can't remember. Why didn't I pick The Fog? I've never seen The Fog and I've been wanting to see The Fog. Why? Why didn't I suggest that? I don't know. Well, we had a guest who had never seen The Fog and picked The Fog, and then people got upset and asked why we didn't have a guest who'd already seen The Fog. Well, did did the guest watch The Fog for the podcast? Yes, but I don't know. People sometimes, there are constant new calculuses of what a guest should or shouldn't be on any given episode. (laughs) That's true. Well, that's not up to the listener. Agreed. Uh, The Fog was on the list of options. I'll say that. Sorry, carry on, Paul. For me, the appeal to going uh, to watching Escape from L.A. was that uh, I hadn't um, uh, seen it before. Mm. So I hope I hope for the people uh, who who uh, hope and and wish for that uh, that somebody's seen it previously. Because I get it. I love um, when Gorley has like firsthand experiences of being in a theater opening night and just getting to talk about the response, especially with a. Yeah, horror movies or Escape from L.A. type stuff, genre stuff. Uh, but, um, yeah, I'd never seen it before. Have you seen it, Gorley? Yeah, I've seen it once before, but I believe I was it was it was a former me. It was Rocky Mountain High. Nice. Uh, I think I my buddy Jeremy Carter from Super Ego. Yeah. I had this bedroom that was huge and a living room that was small. So my TV was in my bedroom. And so we used to I had this light two person couch and we used to. Because I didn't have room for this couch in the bedroom, we used to lift it on top of my bed <laughs> and sit on this couch on top of my bed and get high. And we watched um, this movie. And so it's as good as a, I never saw this movie because I don't remember a thing. So well, I'm just going to you quote forget, your email. Go you ahead. Forget and then uh, fall off. When you got up <laughs> off the couch? That's a good question. No, but the couch was really like soft and wobbly. So I don't know how we really stayed up there in the first place. But I did rewatch it for this episode. So I am as fresh as can be. On a couch that was on a bed? Yeah, on top of a roof. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> 
Uh, Matt, it, it sounds like what you just described sounds like maybe possibly uh, the best year of anyone's life. Yeah, <laughs> and I, the think, one year. I think the prime way to watch this movie, too. Well, like, that, sure. that's what I was going to say. Ben yeah. asking so many follow-up questions for clarification, Matt. Ben has always been a big champion of the idea that the best way to watch a movie is on a porch. Correct. Mm-hmm. On a TV VCR. Yeah. With mm-hmm. an extension cable running from the porch inside so it can be plugged in with a bong. That's sort of Ben's ideal movie viewing experience. I think he blew his mind a little bit with couch on a bed on a roof. You're welcome. Yeah. Wow. Try it out. Try it out. I mean, those days are over for me, but I I would love to like pass that mantle to someone who could keep it alive. <laughs> I'm so honored. Yeah. I mean, I love the innovation, so I'll have to try it out. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Producer Ben's all about innovation. David, well, you found the email? Yeah, I, uh, here's, I'm going to, you said if it were me, I'd say Escape from L.A. for surmises. Now, my guess is that that is an autocorrect error, and you were trying to say for shoresies, because I don't know why mm. you would say who, for who surmises. This, this is, is Matthew Corley. Oh, my God. I In correspondence I, with me. I, I can't, I don't remember that. And the fact that I, like, had an autocorrect in there, this is, this mystery may never be resolved. This is the only other thing I want to say. This email was sent on April 1st, which I, you know, uh, I didn't have my fool screener on on the email. Like, so maybe you were joking and I just Mm. wasn't picking up on it. I was like, Escape from L.A., throw it on the board. Gorley and Russ. That's all there is. I can assure you I was not doing an April Fool's (laughs) joke. You really wanted uh, the thing, but you, as a joke, said you wanted Escape from L.A. (laughs) No, I mean, we should, we, I like, right, we do this March Madness thing to pick a director we'll cover. Carpenter wins uh, at the end of March, April 1st. David is frantically sending out emails because nothing makes David happier than booking 18 episodes in advance within the span of one Mm, afternoon. filling out my spreadsheet. It's so good. And we used to be, like, so banked up so far in advance that we reach out to you guys in April. You're like, when we record, we're, like, probably around July. You're like, great, I'm having a baby a little bit after that. Perfect timing. We get way behind. And then now this episode is happening, like, Yeah, because didn't later. we also, we were going to record right when the baby was coming, so we had to boot it back again? Or am I making that up? Well, I had, my wife had a baby. So, yes, look, right. a lot of stuff went Too on. You know what? The only thing I can think is that I was, my logic, and this is not sound logic, was that we cover so many horror movies that mm-hmm. maybe we try something that wasn't horror. But I will I don't say, remember. Th- I assume that was your logic, which I thought yeah, was kind right. of cool. It's yeah. like, I, I feel like when people ask me to guess on other movie shows, I try to pick movies that I think don't overlap with things we have done or would possibly do. Yeah. But was there a dialogue between you and me, Paul? Because I hate to think that I was just like answering for the no, both of us. I must uh, well, have checked look, in with you. You know what? I said, oh, I, doubt I forgot you were doing that. I bet we were talking about it. You you said you were going to you because you're saying if it were me, I'd pick Escape from L.A. Let me check with Paul. And then you came back saying Paul's in. So, OK, I must because that, that would be a bold move for someone to just answer <laughs> oh. for someone escape from L.A. Like, wow. As a podcast um, brother, you would never you would never do that. No way. Never. Also, guys, as far as all these, uh, you know, I know we like scheduled and planned stuff and things didn't work out. But, uh, you know, if you want to make God laugh, make a plan. Hey, yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Hey. Yeah. hey, and the other thing and is, he's look, rolling right now. He's, <laughs> he's <laughing>. listening. <laughs> the other thing is, uh, look, what matters is that it all worked out and we're here recording the episode. And what matters beyond that is we spent 10 minutes talking about the saga of trying to schedule this episode, which is <laughs> riveting podcast material. <laughs> It's behind the podcast, man. Yeah. 
Um, so, but the other thing, look, and this is why I thought you might be picking it, is this movie's a little silly. And yeah. sometimes you guys get a little silly. Sometimes we do too. Maybe uh, you just thought it would be a good energy. I think that's the case, yeah. You know, it's more fun to tackle the silly ones. Yeah, we try to be as solemn and, and serious in our analysis of the movies. But sure. it, it's true. Sometimes we <laughs> get a little filled, filled with whimsy. Let's keep this serious from here on out and yeah. give this movie the respect it deserves. Sure. So this is maybe yeah, the silliest so. fucking movie I've ever seen. That's yeah. my serious <laughs> certainly, certainly from Johnny Carpenter. I mean, yeah. there's yeah. no question it's his silliest film. It has to be, right? Yeah, yeah. and there yes. were like, I definitely saw the the memes and the uh, gifts or of of the silly moments before. Yes, but I didn't know how deep the trove <laughs> of the bonkers went. Oh. Like, the, I never saw a meme or a, a, a gif of the basketball scene, <laughs> the like basketball to the death scene. Uh, holy cow! But doesn't that just reek of? peak like post peak carpenter who's as we know is getting high and playing nba video games of him just going well if i got to do another movie i might as well just write what you know you know it is like an nba jam like side game yeah this film is written by john carpenter deborah hill and kurt russell like i think i initially was i was watching and i was like is this something where he kind of farmed out the script? He was nope. like, ah, oh, we should. And it's like, no, they got together. Yeah, this and is they, the one he you know, chose. It was a meeting to... of minds. Yeah. Right. No, this is the one where he was like, no, I better handle this one. Right. And, and he brought back his ex-girlfriend. Yeah. Right. Who at this point has become like a major fucking film producer in her own right. Right. And the yeah. leading man who like Kurt Russell doesn't fucking write movies. I mean, I guess he was. Pretty hands-on with Tombstone, right? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. That's the only he... other movie I've heard about him like getting into the weeds on in that kind of way. Well, it just sounds like he's some kind of like impromptu on-set script doctor like he was with Tombstone. And then I believe with this movie, he kind of fixed the ending or something like that. <laughs> fixed. I used... Yeah. <laughs> well, <laughs> he he I'm rustled done. rustled the ending. No, the ending's actually good. I should I should like is. the ending. I like the it ending is. just fine. Um, well, we could get into some of the context of how this thing is made. Do you guys like Escape from New York? Or, or is that like a totemic movie for you guys? Uh, or something you've seen like a couple times over the years? You know, like how much does that movie matter? Oh, I super uh, dig it. Uh, I like, it's probably been eight or nine years since I last saw it. But I watched it a handful of times, you know, growing up in high school, college, Moving out to L.A., hanging out. <laughs> uh, but yeah, it's, it, it, um, the last viewing has been a while. So like there were certain things that I saw like where <laughs> we I'm sure we'll talk about it. But just like, are these echoes, homages, <laughs> tips of the hat or just like boilerplate yeah. Home Alone to recalculate, you know, same glass, new drink. I I, I was trying to pull up the specific quote here because I think it was from one of our listeners on the Blank Check subreddit and I couldn't find it. So I'm, I'm going to uh, paraphrase it poorly and credit to whoever made this observation first. But like this movie almost feels a little bit more like this is the point this person was making, like a sort of next gen remake update of a video game than it does a sequel in certain ways, you know? Wow. Yeah. that's I love that. That's Be, great. Because it is, I mean, like, it does function as a sequel, obviously, but it does kind of go, like, 
beat for beat. And almost everything in the first movie has a direct analog in this movie. And not in like an Austin Powers, like second movie has second beat of the same bit. You know, this is like (laughs) it's just like like fucking maps from the stars. Eddie is like so similar to Cabby, you know? Yes. Although, yes. Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And the Valeria Galino character is so similar to Adrian Barbeau. Uh-huh. And yeah. then you have, like, the basketball, the death sequences, like his weird boxing match sequence. Yeah. But, yeah, to the right, to the point of the Reddit, uh, or the person who, the comment, uh, like, it is just swapping them out with kind of bigger, um, uh, what are those called at the end? End guys? What are, that's what my oh, friends... Like, yeah, that I bosses. Bosses, yeah. bosses, yeah. yeah. Right. It does yeah. feel like refillable hit set pieces it reminds me of the album that oasis did after what's the story morning glory like yes where it's just vi- you can base a masterpiece and yeah. the same masterpiece. hey look yep. i love it too don't get me wrong but you can almost mm-hmm. track by track kind of see what they were trying to just do the same kind of right you know like, let's rock just, yeah. to acoustic yeah right yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, i I, yes. I found i found the quote here sorry it's it's the username toasted penguin of course uh <laughs> And the the line was very simple, but it's just it's more an expansion with reskin map than full blown sequel. Yeah, that that's right. But like, imagine if yeah. Blade Runner twenty forty nine, like you know, where it's like you're all right, we're finally making a sequel to the thing everyone, the cult object that is hallowed. Well, they're not making like, a sequel to the thing. Let's be very clear, David. He's making a sequel to Escape from New York, not the thing. No, but like, and and it's like this time, Rick Deckard is going to have a surfing adventure. Yeah. He's like, you know, if it was just the goofiest, like, no, now it's just because Hollywood now, all the fan stuff, you know, everything is so serious and everyone's like, oh, and we want to be absolutely respectful and they they go out to Comic-Con and they act like Giving they're announcing the a new Pope. 300 right, Easter eggs. <laughs> and like I, in the 90s, it's kind of like, yeah, let's just do another one. I don't know. Snake will do some stupid shit. Like it's, and I'm not saying that this movie is tossed off. This movie is like full of ideas. It's not, it's not like they are doing it for a quick buck, but it's just, it's, I, I sort of appreciate how, how little it cares about the sort of tonal uh, expansion, I guess is, is the, the kindest way to put it. Yeah. The full, the full of ideas thing is the most appealing thing about the movie. And my favorite thing after watching the movie, I was just like, Oh, it was like, packed full of a lot of uh, of ideas like essentially every five six minutes you had a new idea or yeah. a character through and that sort of like enthusiasm uh i mean the ideas are so huge that uh a, a budget could never meet them that there's like a bulletproof helicopter attack above disneyland <laughs> like <laughs> I love that they thought they were going to be able to pull that off. I mean, look, the special effects, the, the, let's say in particular, the CGI digital effects in this movie are disastrous. They are perhaps the worst in the last 30 years of cinema, and we will talk about them more. But <laughs> this is far and away his biggest budget ever on biggest a movie. Ever got. That's crazy. This, this is ostensibly the closest he ever came to really getting a blank check and being able to do whatever he wanted. And even then, he clearly reached beyond his means. But after watching so many movies where, like, to his credit, Carpenter is so good at working within his limitations and figuring out a movie to make at just the size he can make it and using the power of suggestion and and sort of, like, uh, implications of mythology and all that to make things feel bigger. It's nice to see a movie where he's like, every idea I have 
And he's throwing them all out there, even the ones he can't afford. Do you guys think this yeah. movie would be better if it had, like, say, Jurassic Park level CGI at the time where you just didn't question? In fact, you left the movie going, those effects were amazing. Or would it be worse in a way? It'd be <laughs> sick if there are dinosaurs. <laughs> yep, that's how <laughs> Ben interprets your well, question. Well, the La Brea tar pits. <laughs> I, I think ideally, Matt, the effects are like 15% better than they are. Like, I don't think this movie works if it's state-of-the-art photorealistic, even for its day, mm -hmm. yeah, right? Like, mm -hmm. even mm -hmm. if it felt dodgy now, it, you have, like, watching this movie, you're like, did this come out the same year as The Last Starfighter? Uh, <laughs> like, it, it, it feels like, like, 10 years past, it does. even from when it came out, you know? Coincidentally, I was just going down a YouTube rabbit hole and up comes, you know, like a watch mojo, the 20 worst CGI in films. And I just put it on. I was bottle feeding my daughter. And, and <laughs> here's Escape from L.A. with the little submarine sequence flying over Universal Studios. Right. The, it, the uh, problem is it's almost which do you pick? Is it the submarine? Right. Yeah. Is it the surfing? Like what? what where do you even go? It, it almost always gets included, though, in any list like that. And we should also say this is a weird example of like, we've obviously talked a lot, excuse me, about our friend Kurt over the last uh, four or five months, Curtie Russell, mm -hmm. and uh, how uh, sort of A-list stardom kind of eluded him for a very long time. He spends the 80s making these movies with Carpenter that fucking rule that all kind of underperform upon release in one way or another. Escape from New York was the most successful in its moment. But certainly its legacy only grew and grew and grew and grew. And then as the, the late 80s turn into the early 90s, he finally sort of makes it to being like the, the guy above the title, right? We talked about there was a lot of him being the second guy in Tango and Cash, you know, or, uh, you know, doing a movie like Tombstone that's more of an ensemble or whatever. He finally got to the point in the late 90s or this weird moment where he finally gets to be like Kurt Russell is the star of this action movie above the title. He's not having to share it with Steven Seagal anymore. It's Kurt. And Kurt has that cachet and he cashes it all in on I'm bringing Snake back, right? It's it's somewhat yeah. similar to like what we're seeing Keanu do now, which mm -hmm. is like John Wick gives him this unexpected boost later than anyone could have guessed. And he's like, great, going back to the Matrix, going back to Bill and Ted. I'm bringing the original people back. We're making the, the oh, yeah. later statements on these characters, you know? Um, and yeah, he, you know, Russell extends that to Carpenter and is very hands-on. He wants to do it. Uh, you know, he kind of wills this into being, but I think especially if you're someone who's like lived with Escape from New York as this kind of like cult gem for 15 plus years in your mind's eye, whether you saw it at the time or you were someone who grew up watching it on cable or VHS later, and then Kurt Russell has really kind of like grown into his like uh, you know, populist, accessible, badass mode uh, by the mid-90s, and then this movie shows up, and it's like goofballs McGillicuddy. You're just like, <laughs> what the fuck is anyone doing here? I wish that was the title. <laughs> goofballs McGillicuddy, yeah. Snake is back. Um, I, you know, I, I think you're right that this the budget is really what's to blame for this movie, if you're looking for something to blame, because when you look at Escape from New York, it's just got that carpenter limitation grittiness. And when you get to this movie and all the production values, you start to literally see the seams, not just in the set, but the CGI. And you realize that, you know, 
we all adore Carpenter here, but his strength is kind of his there's that like DIY feel to his stuff. And when you get a full studio behind him, like in this movie or memoirs of invisible man, some, the magic somehow falls out. I've said this before on, I think on one of our podcasts, so I apologize, but like Halloween was kind of like lightning in a bottle where, yeah, they did all this, but how much of it was actually planned and how much of it was just benefit of timing where like Spielberg and Kubrick are building a ship in a bottle Carpenter got, in a way, lucky, even though he had a lot of resources and talent. But then when you get to something like this, where he has all the resources in the world, it doesn't mean a thing. If anything, it exposes a light on some of the shortcomings of Carpenter. That can be entertaining in their own right, but they're not necessarily um, purposeful. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. I, uh, Alex Ross Perry, I mean, brought this up in our Halloween episode, which I never uh, noticed before. But like the lack of extras in that movie, which was purely a budgetary limitation, <laughs> gives it this weird, it's creepy and haunted. Unplanned There's no creepiness. One on the streets, right? Ever, yeah. right? right. There's it's no just kids like just trick or treating. Yeah, right. I never right. thought about by Halloween that. too. There's kids everywhere. Like suddenly they have a budget. Like now right. it looks like real Halloween. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. And then Halloween mm-hmm. Kills has maybe the most people I've ever seen in a film <laughs> <laughs> Halloween Kills reveals that Haddonfield actually has a population of 10 million yeah and they're all living in the hospital yes <laughs> it's a hotel it's the yeah. Haddonfield Memorial Hotel <sighs> and it takes them like half an hour to walk up the stairs it just takes them so long in Halloween oh, Kills well, that's a 30 stairs. story hospital <laughs> yeah that, that's a very fascinating movie I used to I used to make the joke that like when in the early 2000s, all the the canonical horror franchises were getting remade. I was like, if your horror remake is successful enough that you get to make a sequel, you can't make a sequel to the remake. You have to remake the original sequel. Yes. Wait, was always my stupid bit. So like. Uh, uh, Rob Zombie shouldn't make Rob Zombie's Halloween 2 and sequelize his first Halloween. Oh, right. He should do Rob yeah. Zombie's quote, Halloween 2. Yes. And he has to just yeah. take that film and remake it. it was always my stupid joke. I mean, and then I watch Halloween Kills and I'm like, this kind of is a remake of Halloween 2. I know it's oh, not one for oh one. Oh boy, big time. Oh, so Halloween Ends is going to be about Silver Shamrock? Maybe, but yes. like, do you know what I'm saying? Though? Like, Halloween Kills feels like him being like, I made my successful tribute to the first Halloween, and now I'm making my tribute to Halloween 2. Yeah. The, the how do I stretch out a sequel that starts 30 minutes after the first movie ends? <laughs> oh, totally. I mean, uh, spoilers if somebody hasn't uh, seen it, but like, uh, uh, when the when it picked back up in the Home Alone 2 1981 world, yeah. uh, uh, or the, the end of 78, I had such a flutter of excitement uh, uh, seeing that, and I hoped, because it went a little bit longer than just a scene or a single flashback, I told Matt this, I thought it was going to go into like a Godfather Part 2 parallel (laughs) storylines of the night after... Halloween 78 and the night after Halloween 2018. Paul, that's such I mean, a goddamn good idea. It, I, I, it kills it me rolled. that that didn't happen because when you first said that, I thought about that after and then you, hearing you say that again, I'm so sad I want that movie. But you couldn't I, include Laurie and the recreation stuff without it being dodgy and weird. So that would be sure. the drawback. Right, sure. I guess, right. And then you, re- that's the thing, when I was watching it, I realized like, oh, right, they need to clarify the continuity of their Halloween world because there's not Halloween 2. 
So they need yeah. to now explain how Michael Myers went to jail. Like, you know, and, and uh, I actually kind of like Halloween Kills, or I d- it's interesting. Really hate yeah. that movie, and I thought it was sort of a weird, you know, flawed, interesting yeah. I thing. Liked it. Yeah, yeah. I, I know. It. I listened to your pod. I listened to the pod. Paul was positive, but that was it is. Not. It is funny that like like the original Halloween two, it like starts off right after, tries to figure out how to extend a thing for a couple more hours, and then also with the nineteen seventy eight flashback stuff, is trying to like retcon stuff into the previous movie and go like, actually, this was this the entire time. Yeah, uh-huh. yeah. your perception of yeah. relationships were wrong. People you thought were dead are actually still alive. Right, and even using uh, footage from from the eighty one sequel right, when the right. yeah. when they zip up Annie in the body bag, they they still had to go back to the to the supposedly not part of the can. I mean, this is the most important stuff in the world to me. Well, I agree, and the the logo for the hospital is the same. The well, and the masks were in it. They put in the shamrock mask. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, like I love. The, it feels like they're doing it for the fans. I love it. That's why you gotta I, give I it like back it. to the fans. At the end of the day, you gotta give it back yep, to the fans. Yep. Which this movie maybe doesn't do. I mean, that's I think <laughs> right. That's, that's the thing. This movie is not. It doesn't know that the fans exist, or if it does, it does not care. No, it's all. it's like a cut rate. The thing that I noticed when you look at Snake Plissken in Escape from New York. He looks like the coolest G.I. Joe mm, yes, ever. Yes. And in this film, his like fatigues are all creased and ironed, and everything's generic and flat. Even his hair is a little bit more feathered and long. And he looks like mm-hmm. like a knockoff G.I. Joe that you would find in like a 99 cent store. A corpse of, or yeah. whatever. Yeah. Yeah. Uh it, I, I mean, it's uh it's so weird because he shows up looking perfect. You're like, that snake yep. exactly as I remembered him. And Russell's maybe only gotten more handsome with time. I yeah. fucking love it. And they're He's like 45 in this. He looks insane. amazing. <gasps> insane. He looks incredible. Insane. The two jaw dropping facts I found out after I watched this, that it was a 50 million budget yeah. and that Kurt Russell was 45. Yeah. Yeah. Insane. Insane. Yeah. Uh, uh, but, uh, he shows up and he looks fucking immaculate. And then immediately Stacy Keach is like, take that shit off. We have some new dumb costume for you to wear. Yeah. <laughs> and you're yeah. like, no, get the brown jacket. Like he's, it's this shitty, like, I don't know. I think we, we, uh, next week, uh, we'll get into ghosts of Mars. But a thing that I found fascinating <laughs> about watching that movie is just like, he's making that like two years before, like the textbook of how those movies are supposed to look uh, uh, grimy, unpretentious genre movies are supposed to look right. And there's a very slick, cool kind of like post MTV music video aesthetic that takes over these things that he does not know how to tap into. And the mm-hmm. snake's outfit in this feels like a bad attempt at that kind of thing. Right. It's like this is like a shitty test run for Neo in the Matrix. Like, he's just wearing yeah. a worse version of what Neo wears. And it's like, no, to give him the camo pants and the fucking brown jacket and the black tank top, like, don't make this look all techy. And as, yes, it's like, it's creasing weirdly. I mean, I, I think it's very uh, uh, notable that, like, I think the rights for Escape from New York were complicated for a while uh, because it was independently produced and this was a big Paramount movie. And they made a uh, uh, McFarlane toys uh, early episode merchandise spotlight made a snake Plissken action figure in the late nineties, like 99, maybe even 2000. And the only one they could get the rights for was escape from LA. Oh. They had to do LA 
interesting. That's hilarious. That's like, here's your Michael Corleone action totally. figure. It's the part three one with the f- gray flat top. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, he's got a cardigan. Yeah. Enjoy. But what they did was... <laughs> they a glass they, of orange juice. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> they made an action figure of Snake Plissken in the, like, Escape from New York outfit with the tank top and the camo pants. And then they put the shitty jacket on top of him and they were like, the jacket's removable. Uh, but they like had uh, to put the jacket in the packaging. Wow. That's, yep. That sums up this whole movie. Right, and they were just like, like did, pretend the jacket's not there. We, we admit this was a mistake. That's a good point about the like, sort of him maybe being kind of behind whatever was going on with MTV and trying to play catch up. Cause this does feel maybe like the first time Carpenter or around this time, it feels like it's the first time he's like behind the curve with uh culture. Yes. Sometimes it seems like he's got an eye yeah. ahead of like where things are going. Right. And I partly, this is like too easy of a, of a way to put it, but just with, even with Buscemi in there, this is like the first movie Carpenter made post Tarantino post independent world uh, and I wonder if that has to be a some I mean all of those independent filmmakers are half of them Robert Rodriguez Tarantino whoever are like influenced by him and now making the movies I, I wonder with your guys's previous filmmakers it is like does somebody's work change when the younger culture who they're influenced by now is caught up by them and making movies like them but differently in the independent world like Carpenter was can't you see Carpenter seeing that happen and like watching Tarantino and Robert Rodriguez and going nah I don't like it I'm just gonna too loud yeah I'm gonna do my thing and and then that's when he's left behind I think you're right I also feel sometimes you hear with guys like that they're like oh all these young filmmakers they like this thing I did they're wrong it wasn't supposed to be that way that was yeah. a mistake. Like, there's oh, sort of the George yeah. Lucasy thing of like, you fell in love with the wrong thing. Yeah. In my mind's eye, I yeah. wish I'd been making movies like this the entire time, and this is what I could make with the the resources I had. Uh, it's funny you bring up Rodriguez because during the worst of the special effects in this movie, I was like, what does this look like? Like, as you said, Matt, this always shows up on lists and supercuts of the worst special effects ever. Right? It is never ever safe from any of these compilations. Mm-hmm. And so I'd seen some of the big sequences, but then like they're they're interstitial things, they're little things that like you're just like everything looks so fucking bad. Anytime there's any CGI, even if it's just the compositing, it looks like like the magic screen sequences from Pee-wee's Playhouse. Like I've never seen less integration uh, between you know between elements in a film. And I was like, does anything else look like this? And the only answer I could come up with, weirdly, and now I wonder if it's, I don't want to say it's a conscious homage, and I think he kind of owned it as his aesthetic. Like, he made it more of a choice. But the era of Robert Rodriguez making his movies, like, all himself, when he had his run of, like, The Spy Kids and Sin City and Shark Boy and Lava Girl and shit where he was like, I do the special effects myself, we shoot the movie in my garage, like, my studio is in my house— Everything feels handmade, right? I, I agree. There was a point where I forget who's in the car and someone's surfing behind him. It's was Buscemi. It? Yeah. yeah. And Buscemi I'm going. Buscemi is like driving yeah. like this, right? Yeah. I'm watching Sin City unintentionally and I'm look, yes. it looks so much like Sin City where Robert Rodriguez is oh, at wow. least like color desaturating and making right. it a choice. It did feel like Rodriguez saw this and went, 
I like that, but I'm going to do it on purpose, you know? Right. That's because like Spy Kids 3 and, and Sharkborn Lava Girl and some of the other ones, they have that thing where it's like, it looks like color forms. Yeah. I'm not trying to make it realistic. <laughs> yeah. I, I'm just, I have silly ideas. There's no way I'd ever have the budget to execute these ideas realistically. So just everything is going to be stylized. What was the deal with the yeah. company that was doing the CGI? Like they'd never done CGI before. And I don't okay. know how yes. they got the work or something. I'm, I made David watch a special feature about this. <laughs> I, I saw that I, I was looking at reviews of the Shout Factory Escape from LA Blu-ray, which I didn't own. And that there was listed a 20 minute special feature called Render Man with the guy who was in charge of visual effects on this movie that was Render described Man. as something of an apology. And I said, David, do you have this disc? You have to watch this. I hope this is where Slender Man came from. It is where Slender Man came from. He actually invented Slender Man by mistake trying to do just, the CGI just, of this movie. He was trying, trying to, to show me a hang glider. A, an authentic looking human and he came yeah. up with Slender Man. Right, yes. yeah. Momo also came out Why of is he movie? 10 feet tall? I don't know. Uh, like He's like dragging oh, the Oh, millimeters to inches. I don't know what to... Oh, God. No, it's actually a very sweet feature because uh, he's a nice sort of portly British guy with a beard. He's absolutely like, you know, sort of chill and avuncular and mostly is sort of proud of the movie, even though he knows the CGI is bad and is very upfront oh, about it. what a, you know, what a <laughs> failure that was. And it's a lot of the stuff that you guys have sort of already been talking about, which is basically like, even with a huge budget, uh, huge budget by Carpenter standards, but a pretty mm -hmm. huge budget in general for 1996, they w just reached way too far. They just had these sort of kind of, uh, you know, bold and, you know, big story ideas. And because it was this sort of dawn of CGI age, there was a lot of like, and we'll figure it out in, in post. Like there was a lot of that. Yeah. Like, apparently with the submarine, they built a submarine, like a 26-foot physical oh thing, and Carpenter thought it looked bad, and so they were like, okay, <laughs> well, we'll just fix it in post. And oh. then you just see in this interview, he's like, and you know, I mean, I thought, you know, I'd been working and rendering, and I, I thought I had a grasp on it, but, uh, you know, even though it's this very simple object, it's kind of, it's very difficult, you know, and then he kind of starts tailing off, like, it's a lot of that. Apparently, the company that they, uh, the whatever the software that they use, the company started sending its own engineers to the post production studio because the stuff they were trying had just not been tried on this software before. They had like a special computer that they were doing this on, and it was like the only computer you could do this work on, right? It was built by a specific oh company, my God. of course. <laughs> and they would essentially, eventually start calling the company and being like, So we're trying to do this, and we don't know how. And the company would be like, um, We're going to send the inventor of the computer, uh, you know, basically, you know, like to work on that with you because we don't really know either. Oh. And like, it's, he's, uh, he's a sweet guy. Uh, but his whole thing is like, I just, we overreached badly. You know, I, we, we were trying to make things photo real and there was, it was absolutely not ready. Like we were just, the, the technology was just not there for it. And that's why the submarine sequence looks so bad. That's why the surfing looks so bad. And I worked on it for seven months and then obviously wait, wait, wait. everyone was mad. Go the on. The surfing Mm. <laughs> the surfing was CGI? Well, yeah. he's Wait, on... David, you, you check your facts on that. I think. Hold on. 
I believe there is some physical element. Like he is on some sort of wave machine thing. I don't know. Wait, so no, the but, uh, physical element is he's on the water yeah, in the surfing. ocean. It's, so it's, in it's the Los Angeles. Pacific, I assume. Right. Right. Obviously, obviously, right. They just summoned a tsunami and uh, uh, <laughs> Peter and Kurt said, hang 10. And then they were ready to go. And we're going to make sure this tsunami driving goes... alongside. Wait. So how did they even get hooked up with this company? And then my follow up comment on that is this was what year? 97, right? This is 96. 96. It's the same year as Independence Day. Okay, if you but want to Jurassic do like a Park has been out, right? For three years. Yeah, it, okay. So, so imagine Peter yeah. Fonda and Kurt Russell on these surfboards going, don't worry, we're going to Jurassic Park this. It's <laughs> and everybody's <laughs> going like, after Jurassic Park, I bet everybody is thinking like, oh, it's a done deal. Don't even worry about it. Yeah. And thinking like, we've got it made. Just surf, buddy. Just surf. We're fine. Do you guys know who was uh, Peter Fonda's stunt double, surf double on this movie? Jane Fonda. <laughs> Henry, obviously. He's already been on Golden Bond. He knows water. Tony Hawk. What? what? Oh, that kind of works, actually. Yeah, that's good. Yeah. That's... I mean, he's our generation's Peter Fonda. But it's, it's one of those things where they they made like one of those uh, indoor sort of like wave rider things. Right. That's yeah. what. It, that's what they're. Certainly. That's what they are matching. Yeah. Right. Right. You know. Certainly. Um, uh, look. And and then right for for when it's actually them surfing, it's Tony Hawk and I believe another skateboarder whose name escapes me. Um, I think Jurassic Park. You hear all the stories about how it was like we're doing stuff. That has never even been attempted before. You know, they had to put so much thought, preparation, and R and D, and uh, like TLC into executing every single moment. And it, you know, it, it's that stat that gets thrown around where it's like there are only like ten minutes of dinosaurs in that movie, but they're right. so judiciously placed yeah. and chosen and executed. The presence feels yeah. really large, but they bit off exactly as much as they could chew. And that was Steven Spielberg at the height of his powers with all the best special effects people in the world. Not some people who had never worked on a movie before in a computer that even the people who made right. it didn't know could pull Th this that's off. That's the thing. Right. I think this, he, the technology was so exciting. There was so many opportunities presented by it, but people were still figuring out the limits. Like, and yeah. this is just a classic, this movie went, up to the limits and I always yeah to yeah. put it like yeah three years after Jurassic Park it does feel like um in CGI years this was like awkward puberty years <laughs> yeah mm -hmm. but also like, like Independence Day uses like a lot of models and the other yeah. thing that Roland Emmerich used to always brag about is like I, I like 60% of my movie costs nothing like, I, I make these movies that have these ensemble casts where 60 to 70% of them are people in rooms having conversations. Mm -hmm. And then I make the money shots really count. There is, like, yeah. no shot in this movie that is cheap. Mm -hmm. Right? Like, mm -hmm. it, 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 you compare it to Escape from New York where he gets a lot of production value out of just, like, a deserted street. And yet they all but, look cheap, though. That's what kind of totally, impressive in its because own Because right. he's, like, so overreaching. But every yeah. single shot of it has, like, a bigger set than you've seen before, or a thousand extras, or costumes, or props, or CGI, or models, or something. You know, there's, like, always a lot of stuff on screen. But, I mean, and we could dive into this. 
I agree with Paul. I'm I'm pretty fucking won over just by how many goddamn ideas this movie has. Both yep. in this like silly little boy on a playground, like imagining wild scenarios kind of way, but also like it's got some pretty interesting. I I love my my carpenter fuck the world cynicism, like uh, so bright. I'm gonna tell you why everyone's full of shit stuff and i think in a certain way this movie has some of his more interesting social commentary perhaps it is not executed as cleanly and successfully within its narrative but it's got some ideas i find really compelling i also think there's the much discussed carpenter apocalypse trilogy right where he talks about uh what it's it's thing uh mouth of madness and prince of darkness Mm -hmm. And for me, I love the thing, but like this feels more like the apocalypse movie to me. I mean, this movie mm. literally ends with Snake Plissken being like, I'm fucking shutting down society. Yeah. Have fun. Yeah. Yeah. I did think it was, yeah, it also had, uh, yeah, the look of uh, post apocalypse. Yes. But yeah, when I think about it, it's not until the it all gets shut down that it would be a true apocalypse. Right. Mm. It's like, it's what we think of as a post-apocalyptic society. And then Snake's like, no, there's still too much (laughs) shit going on here. I'm fucking blowing out the light. (laughs) It's such a funny way for a movie with terrible CGI to end as well, which is like Carpenter's sort of grumpy avatar being like, I'm pulling the plug on all this shit. Like, you know, enough. And like, I I think that's not, not the CGI response, but like, it is kind of intentional. Carpenter's, getting old although we have all these quotes in our research where he's like i'm an old fogey like you know i'm over the hill i better wrap it up soon and it's like he was like 49 he's not that old at all i feel like you can feel that though and it almost feels like the ending of this movie is him going like "Ah, i don't understand we're transitioning into cgi let's just pull the plug if i can't do it no one can he wanted to pull the plug on that weird computer so yeah that was that couldn't like do the effect. So it was like <laughs> yeah, the, he got so frustrated. They went back and reshot Kurt Russell and shut it all down. Just imagine John Carpenter's scary. Imagine he hey, is. you want to come to the screening room and uh, see the latest submarine sequence? Yeah, sure. And then you show him that. Like, what do you expect him to do? I, 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 don't know. I think that's I, I would my be so scared issue with this movie. I liked it. Don't get me wrong, but I don't feel like I feel Carpenter having fun with this movie and so his cynicism is present in every movie he makes but in halloween and the thing he's still bringing like his desire to craft this one feels a little phoned in and that coupled with the cynicism it it makes me feel a little bit like mommy and daddy are fighting even though i like to watch this movie for what it is there's something off-putting to it that doesn't feel right it does feel like when carpenter turns like or when chevy chase went sour or burt reynolds went bitter there's a moment that you just kind of go like oh i i'm seeing vestiges of my old friend but it's not fully there and it just makes me sad more than anything i mean we've been talking about as we've been doing these episodes in order that carpenter may be a victim of a thing that has happened to many great artists in hollywood which is just a, a chevy chase irreparably breaks them like, it does feel like something is gone after he works with Chevy. Yeah. Um, yeah. But I, the fun... Jeez, th- yeah. Did they do it to each other? Uh, <laughs> yeah, would, a little bit. Uh, Chevy oh. was already kind of damaged by that point, I would mm. say. But, but yeah, perhaps a little bit. Uh, I, I do... The fun for me where I feel in Carpenter is more like 
can you fucking believe they're letting me make this thing? Like, this just feels like it's like every idea written on a scrap of paper that he had for 25 years that he never had the budget to execute. You know, not literally, but just it's like this movie is a collection of all the shit he had to cut out of other movies. And when we've been doing these episodes, you know, JJ and Nick are researchers often pulled things about like originally his idea was this and then the only budget he could get was this. So they scaled it back Mm -hmm. to this. And this is like the one time he gets to work with this kind of crazy canvas, even if the canvas is not as big as what he actually needs to execute. It's the one time he lets himself sort of like write that unencumbered. We should sort of just say quickly, uh, he in the early 80s signs his or mid 80s, his alive pictures deal, right, where he's going to make these small budget films for Mm -hmm. four four of them uh, for under five million dollars. And from that point, it was like carve out. I get to make one big studio film outside of this alive deal because I want to make an Escape from New York sequel. So this is in like the 80s. This is like five years after Mm. Escape from New York. When uh, Big Trouble in Little China is getting ready to be released and everyone assumes that thing's going to be a big hit, they're like, we're going to fucking use this momentum, finally make the Snake Plissken sequel. When people are asking uh, Kurt Russell on the press tour, so this feels like it could be a franchise for you, you got plans for where Jack Burton goes next? He's like, I don't want to do another fucking Jack Burton movie. Snake Plissken, baby. I'm going back to Snake Plissken. Like, wow. it's like so long they keep on going like, and if the next one hits, then we finally get to make the the Snake Plissken sequel. Yeah, I had heard that like the script started getting written right mid to late 80s. So that's right around the time. And uh, uh, it does feel like it has... Uh, remains of a Reagan era Mm -hmm. like script which that's like why they live excels but Cliff Robertson's president president character it feels very Reagan-y yeah uh, absolutely and the fact that the movie's about celebrity and movie stars that Reagan would be a person who could also be exist as a hologram as a president you know uh but th- there was a sadness watching to it because, I mean, I love when I watch They Live, I'm just like, right on. <laughs> this is so yeah. cool. Yeah. He's like the only person saying this at the time wh- who has a a strong enough voice to be heard making movies, right? Yeah. Uh, and then watching the sort of like Reagan-y thing, it reminded me of like... 15 years ago, Harry Shearer did like a limited series where he was like Nixon. (laughs) Yeah. And it made me think like also maybe like 10 years, somebody from our generation, a filmmaker makes a movie and it's still, and it's okay if it was, but like hung up on Trump. There's like a Trump figure. You're like, Yes, yes, right. Or but there's a, Dick Cheney a new biopic demon. in 2017. <laughs> yes, yes. I mean, it, it is weird. It, it seems like they don't start writing this script in earnest until 1993. Like that's when they sit down and finally commit to what this movie becomes. I think it's yeah. notably post Chevy. Uh, apparently, the thing that <laughs> yeah. Carpenter that pushed him was like, I want to have fun. I want to work with my friends again. Right. Mm-hmm. Like I think that. I think that really was yeah. the impetus. He'd wanted to work with a big movie star so badly and it burned him so badly that he was like, let's, oh, let me get yeah. my friend back hmm. and my ex-girlfriend creative partner back and let's just make something that we think is right fun. Yeah. So like 1993 and the germ of the idea, uh, as Carpenter says, uh, uh, LA has just been through riots, mudslides, fires, and earthquakes. Kurt had a great idea. He said, all these disasters happen and we all sit around in denial. 
we all say, why should I leave? It's great. That was the germ of it. A combination of having a good plot with a little subversive juice and having some fun. Um, in L.A., the four seasons came to be known as flood, fire, earthquake, and riot, said Deborah Hill. Sometimes uh, you feel like you live in a disaster movie. What's next? Lotus. Jesus. I mean, I was born and raised here. I don't remember any of this. Those things were... <laughs> I think that's a little bit of a, a chronocentrism. Sure. Yeah. You... Yeah. Yeah. Oh my God, this is the worst time we've ever lived in. I also happen to be in my mid to late 40s right right now. (laughs) And I've gone through like a divorce or something. I mean, I I will say this, Trip, in the research, Kurt Russell's idea was to, quote, set the film in an even more lethal Los Angeles where a future, in a future where danger has become an emotional aphrodisiac. That sounds bananas yeah but that sounds funny like (laughs) i i I was sort of like i almost like the more sci-fi approach versus this sort Mm -hmm. of you know kind of scattershot social commentary stuff i don't mind the president stuff i think that's a good update like i think it's a it's a worthy update right and let me say too like i would i love it too because it's like yeah you can still like think about what Reagan was and kick him down. You don't have to just make it George H.W. Bush or, uh, I mean, I was thinking it could have been worse where it's like the, the president is like a Clintonian figure who it's not about like morality. It's like everybody should get their dicks. Uh. (laughs) I really love the idea of like a a culture that says, or a government that says like uh, enforces morality. Yes. I love that. That whole speech Cliff Robertson does at the end talking about like red meat, you know, smoking, drinking women, unless you're married, you know, all the things that are banned. Right. And it's like, meanwhile, the world is on fire. Like, I love this balance of this guy being like, we have to keep up appearances. (laughs) This is a civil, moral country that is decaying. I'm surprised he didn't do more satire on the entertainment industry because there's just kind of a throwaway line like it's it's done now. It doesn't exist in Hollywood anymore. But I felt like there was an opportunity for a roving gang of movie execs that have kind of banded oh, together and yeah. like warrior style. That would be good. I mean, then there's such a movie this is the stuff thing. wasn't represented. This is what's <laughs> good about Escape from New York, obviously, is that it's vague enough that you can read a lot into the whatever the future is, right? This like, movie we is don't not really know. This movie is very blunt. When you when you have the Surgeon General of L.A. and it's Bruce Campbell, Bruce Campbell and Car- right. Carpenter's going like bigger, bigger. Yes. So there's stuff like that, right? I, whereas that's what I was sort of, I, the political stuff. I think is like fun on target, broad satire. Some of the other stuff could have used some finessing, maybe, or you know. And it's the same. My question is: This is sort of my philosophical question. Is like. If John Carpenter had $50 million for Escape from New York, would that movie also be goofy? Like, is it good that he had no money? I think so. Definitely. I think the lesson we've learned with Carpenter is he has to have limitations and find shortcuts and stuff. It's not like Escape from New York doesn't have goofy little touches. Like, and I love those touches, but Mm -hmm. it's nice that they are sort of sprinkled in. And I like a lot of the goofiness in Escape from LA, but it is, you know, it's a it's a very sugary cookie. It's just a, it's a little, and it's got M and M's in it and sprinkles and you know, they, like they, like when we're like meeting Pam Greer's character like twenty minutes before the end of the movie, like Carpenter's like, eh, 
I think we need one more sort of complete like curveball sequence. <laughs> like, you know what I mean? Like, why isn't that happening 20 minutes uh-huh. in? Like, that's it's just right. a lot that he keeps throwing at the audience. It's a lot of characters in this thing. Yeah. Yes. I was watching. I was like, I remember thinking like, isn't Pam Greer supposed to be in this I movie? Know, me too. And then it was like 15 minutes later after that that she showed up. Yeah, big cast. It's an ensemble. It's a who's who. Uh, it I is. mean, I do. I, I love that because that's my favorite element of Escape from New York is just having this deep bench of character actors and having all these like fun, colorful characters yeah. coming in for little pops and little sequences and dipping in and out. Um, but it's a lot. It's a lot. I missed because wasn't Donald Pleasant supposed to be in this and then he died? Wasn't he going to play this the president? Or did oh, I? That would huh. be good. I that not that I know of, but I mean that would be. I mean I would I love Donald Pleasant in anything, and it would Me be too. fun Me too. if he was still. Yeah, yeah, that is at least that's rumored that that was definitely true. Like. It would be fun if it was the same guy and he's just swerved to the Christian right to just kind of yes. like keep up with the electorate or whatever. And the twist is that, uh, yeah, he's, oh God. And also that late stage Donald Pleasance was just, he was unchecked and it would have been incredible. Right. Yeah, because that was Halloween uh, six, six yeah. time, right? Yeah. And he he died, that movie's 95 or what is yeah. it? 90, uh, it comes out after he died, right? Yeah. 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 So they might have even a uh, fate. Fate was like, no, Donald, <laughs> don't be an escape from L.A. <laughs> I mean, I'm just I'm just looking here. The budget on this, as we said, was 50. So 96, the same year, Independence Day is 75. Mission Impossible is 80. Those are like the two biggest films of that year. I mean, they're the yeah. two films that look the biggest and still hold up and all right. of that. And all that money, a lot of that money is going to those stars in those movies too, which yes. is not happening right. in Escape from LA. Well, certainly. other than Kurt. Yeah. How much did um, he get? I don't know how much he got. I mean, right after this, he does 10 million or so. Oh, big, wow. Right. Yeah. right after this, he does Soldier where he gets 15 and it was like a big deal that he got that big of a paycheck and the movie flopped so hard. But he's coming off of Stargate and Tombstone where apparently the two specific things that boosted his stardom, that made him finally seem like bankable at a higher budget like this. And, but neither of those movies, he is the sole guy, right? right? Like both of those films have a team. Um, and and that was the thing. Yeah, they like wanted him. And uh, uh, Russell obviously had wanted to do this forever, but also went to Carpenter and was like, I want to get while the getting's good. Like they're finally letting me be the guy in $50 million movies. I'm yeah. in my late, 40s i want to run this uh, as far as i can um and they go to paramount i mean because they write the script independently they go to paramount and they're just like yeah and he's like no rewrites so they're like no no no, this is fine <laughs> and it's like how much are you gonna give me 15 nope 50 the blank check perhaps huh boys yeah i know is this yeah is that the most like uh, person or classic example yes. of a blank check yeah yeah he I was guess like, you said that earlier, Griffin. Yeah, astonished yeah, yeah. that yeah. they didn't give him any fucking pushback on anything. And he was like, they paid me a lot. They paid Deborah a lot. They paid Kurt a lot. We had top of the line everything. They didn't want me to rewrite anything. Uh, it was like, if not no. the most expensive, at least at the tier of the most expensive things that Paramount made that year. And it was like an incredibly bad year for 
Paramount. Uh, well, the year before it, they had Virtuosity, Jade, Vampire in Brooklyn, and then Braveheart, which lost money. What? Because they sold international yeah. rights on Braveheart. They fucked up on Braveheart because they did not realize it was going to crush in Europe. Like, foolishly. Right. They in America, have, right? and it, it was only like did one okay. of those um, yeah. George Lucas situations where they didn't sign off the merch for mm-hmm. kilts. <laughs> yes. Yes, they gave up the kilt rights. Wait, so, so Mel was making those kilt billions. <laughs> <laughs> I, I do think... And again, I am basically positive on this movie because it's sort of the thing with Carpenter where like the worst shit he makes, for one, he still basically knows where to put the camera, you know, better than anybody and all that, like, which is huge. Uh, yeah. Um, but uh, like, yeah, you know, I do think we ever, in this miniseries, we have always come back to the time like he just functions so well when he has to stretch every dollar and yeah. seems to struggle when like you say, Griffin, the studio is just kind of like, yeah, thumbs up to this script. It's about what an invisible man wrote some memoirs. I love it. Like get to work, you know, and maybe it's just so crucial to his creative process to have to think about every single element to death, like have to like really, really put it through the sort of mental crunch. You know, I, I think uh, uh, John Carpenter is the man and Kurt Russell is the man. And yeah. so the fact that those two, the mans, like made movies together is just like bliss. Movie bliss. Yeah. It's I, I, so happy that happened. Uh, um, with the bigger budget, though, like what, you, what you're saying, David, like I partly like and, and how it gets out of his hands when it's bigger budget. This gets into armchair psychology, oh like no, no, which uh, we're but, guilty go. of sometimes. It happens. <laughs> go. But if he gets, I feel like he has a healthy fuck you attitude towards Hollywood. And I'm not going to say it's like self-sabotage, but if he gets a budget and he is in the behind the driver's seat, I do with, I say this with love, but I do think John Carpenter's like relationship with Hollywood has always been like, if somebody didn't get asked to go to the prom and then the attitude is, well, I don't want to go to prom anyway. Yeah, like, <laughs> right, that feels like a lot of times you can't fire me i quit mentality yes yeah so maybe when the boss says hey you can do whatever you want there's no beast or whatever to like fight and then creatively something uh loses juice i don't know i think yeah i think he works off of friction i think so too and i think this movie is a case of him throw throwing the prom and realizing, like, yeah. oh, I'm way better in a garage band on prom night with my buddies than I am going to my own prom. I guess this is what I like about this movie. And then we should dip in the plot of two quotes I want to read. What I like about this movie is if he's going to throw the prom one time, I just want to see what that's like. Yeah, yeah. You know? You got and it. I yes. think you, it's just fun to see. Maybe it's not a functional prom. I'd go to this prom. Are you kidding? I'd go to it. It'd be an interesting <laughs> experience, you know? And then he still gets his Carpenter ideas in there. But I do I do think yeah. he's someone who, like, we've been reading these sort of ornery, like, fuck them, this place is full of scoundrels quotes for the last five months. But it's so clear he cares so much. And a lot of that, I think, is... Not even self-defensive, but self-protective. But it's also him trying to, like, stay hungry and on edge, you know? And I think in the 90s, he got just a little tired. Like, I think he mm-hmm. just got so run down by the whole thing 
that either he wanted to take the things that he thought would give him the path of least resistance, whereas resistance had always given him the juice, or he just was like, I don't know, maybe it's something like this. I don't know. Mm -hmm. Here are two quotes I want to read uh, about what we've been talking about. Uh, uh, one, uh, the numbers are Kurt Russell got $10 million, John Carpenter got $5 million, and Deborah Hill got $2 million. The three of them would split 20% of the film's box office profits. So 17 of the $50 million goes to the three of them sort of cashing in off half of, you know, 25 years of making movies that were undersung at the time for which they were underpaid. Um, wow. The, I mean, doesn't it feel like we've all probably uh, paid $5 million for a carpenter? <laughs> um, but the other quote I want to read here, in opposition to everything we're saying, this is a Deborah Hill quote from Fangoria when the movie comes out. She said, we've had to make many compromises in shooting this movie for the amount of money we had. JJ, our researcher, put this in bold. It's not like somebody suddenly handed us a blank check. Ah. Yes, he does. He does clarify. It the, is amazing. This, is, says this is Deborah, I believe, said this. But I think we're delivering a right. film Deborah that's way beyond the budget, and it's going to look even more expensive on the screen. Oh. That's where they fucked up. Well, that's why right. this movie oh, should no. be his best movie ever, because he st they still thought they were working beyond their means at such a high but budget. You want this to be Mad Max Fury Road. Like, you want this to be, like, yeah. finally... The culture has caught up with him. He can do yeah. the fever dream that only existed in his mind's eye before. But it's like you watch movies like this and it's it's shit that like the more and more we go back to it, it's not the best movie we've ever covered on the show necessarily. But it is like Fury Road is kind of the fundamental blank check movie in the sense that like it absolutely should not fucking work. Mm. Every other example of that happening mm. has been like a guilty pleasure at best and a disaster at worst. Mm -hmm. And it's like the filmmaker waiting 20 years to make a movie that seems so ill-advised and somehow pulling it off perfectly. Can I ask you guys, as far as blank check films go, like if every director has their blank check, what's the percentage of good ones versus bad ones? You're the experts. Hmm. <sighs> sort of a 50-50 proposition. That's yeah. interesting though. Yeah. yeah. Really? It would have to find like I, what is the blankest check of mm -hmm. any of each filmography and did it cash versus uh, did it clear versus bounce baby? I, I mean, I love all of the um, um, film brat uh, late seventies, early eighties. They all got huge bloated budgets and made insane movies that most of them didn't work. Right, like for Scorsese, it's New York, New York, which is absolutely right. a bounce at its time. Right? Yeah, and body uh, 1941. 1941. Right. right, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, um, I mean... Uh, Coppola is just like five of them in a row. Yeah, one from The Heart is like a big one, yeah. and then yes, uh, uh, Apocalypse Now. Uh, I, not to make it like a generational thing, but I thought like, it's interesting that none of the generation after that and i don't know if it's just growing up in a the late 70s economy where you had to like <laughs> tighten your belt a bit but none of the stalwarts of that have ever come close to making a huge budget movie that doesn't make it is just a colossal failure that because yeah. the budget was bloated and they made a visionary uh uh 
piece of shit. No, it is interesting that I feel like the movies that have that kind of reputation are not made by um, auteurs in the same kind of way. You know, when you look at shit like Waterworld or whatever, you know, it's like, <laughs> oh, like Kevin Reynolds directed that, you know? And it's like, yeah. well, Costner kind of ghost directed or whatever. But like, if we look back, I'm just running in my head through like the directors we've covered to try to figure out what the ratio is. And it's like, Cameron clears, right? Uh, uh, <laughs> George Lucas essentially bounces when he comes back. Shyamalan largely bounces. Nolan clears. You know, like the the modern people, even their disasters are not as disastrous as the thing that you're talking yeah. about. Yeah. Um, but yeah, none of the like uh, Soderbergh's or. Like, Soderbergh's biggest disaster is Solaris, which is not on the yeah. same scale as the things that we're talking about. That's true. Yeah. Yeah. yeah That's true. I mean, for one, it's just right. It's harder to trick Hollywood into letting you do whatever you want for whatever amount of money. You know, like in the ah, 70s and okay. 80s, people, you know, things were a little looser. And now the blank check movies that we obsess over are things like Lady in the Water, like those sort of rare circumstances <laughs> yeah. where Hollywood was like, I guess. That you've only had hit. I mean, okay, right? You know, like even though the pitch is yes. so straightforwardly ridiculous, right? That they're, I, oh, here we go, we're gonna do it. Um, yeah. Or it's like a sequel, like the Matrix sequels, where Hollywood is like Matrix Two sounds good, like, and the Wachowskis are like, uh -huh. yeah, sure, we got a lot of ideas, though. You know, like that's often how you sneak a blank check by these days. I don't know. We don't think about the core concept of our podcast enough. <laughs> We kind of ignore it sometimes. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I just, it's what you guys are saying. It doesn't scale. Like, Carpenter making a $5 million movie look like a $40 million movie does not mean that he can make a $50 million movie look like a $200 million movie. And it's partly yeah. just CGI. If he's making this at, like, total recall time, right, just, like, five years earlier, mm. where you're going to do more matte paintings, more practical stuff, yeah. You're not going to have much, if any, CGI. Maybe it's a different kettle of fish. Oh, Maybe it is. Just think about yeah. what you're saying. How much would you love to see that sci-fi world of matte paintings of this film and models? Well, I, and and pre-Chevy. Yeah. So yeah. good. Yeah. And pre and yeah, well. Yeah. yeah, the spirit wouldn't be broken. But I also think it's, it's like a very specific language of knowing how to direct digital effects, you know? Yeah. I mean, I, I talk about them way too much, but my beloved quarter crew digital guys who do those VFX artists react videos and they are really good at breaking down and they've done like the surfing sequence for this movie. Right. And they're like, why does this look bad? You know, they really like get into it and they talk about like the number of different things you have to consider when you're doing digital effects that cause your brain to just reject the images on screen, you know? Uh, and it is about the light diffusion or the physics being off or, like, the spatial relations, you know, or whatever it is. There are a lot of, like, scientific things that go into it, whereas I think when you're dealing with things like map paintings and models and optical effects and stuff like that, you can get away with being more painterly about it and just going, like, that's an image, and it's that a was static an shot that, or like just right. a slow zoom. So your your mind is not being asked anything but to look at a landscape. And it's way different than fully functioning, interweaving things, you know. So should we, uh, Matt, you have to take off. Should we just kind of. Yeah, sorry about that, guys. 
Oh, no, no, yeah, it's no fine. Oh, uh, all good, all good. Do you have final uh, notes that you want to leave us with, Matt? Uh, as we continue on for another four hours, probably in your absence. No, not four hours. Wait a second here. Three and a half. Three and a half. <laughs> That's okay with you, Paul. Three and a half. Sure. Yeah. Yep. Cool. Yeah. Cool. Um, no. It, it, it'd come in two VHS tapes. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Nothing specific other than this was a blast. I'm so glad to finally get to do this podcast and I hope to uh, another time when I don't have to leave early, but what fun out of and, here yeah i understand buddy we understand hey. yeah hey. say hello to your baby it's not about my baby i just want to go take a bath <laughs> well say hello to your bath okay yeah also don't well, don't throw out the baby with there, the bath water that's a common mistake i just thought it was cute that we were gonna say the same thing with, uh, about a, such an old idiom that's a good idiom though and you're both wearing yeah. gray t-shirts wow look at you too yeah we are I almost wore like I pretty much the same glasses, and I swapped glasses when I saw that you were wearing these ones. See, now wow. we're wearing like the same glasses. Yeah. Oh wow. Well, Griffin, you tell me. Have you? I had this experience. And tell me, I've had this experience. I was once in New York, and uh, somebody walked up to me and and whispered in my. They helped grab my arm, a guy, and whispered in my ear like, "I'm cool, and we're in the know." He was like. <sighs> I love you in Silicon Valley. I was like, nope. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. Different, yeah. different guy. No, glasses, I want to be but, with yeah. you in Silicon Valley. That's where I, I, I love you. My goal is to love you in Silicon Valley. Yeah. Uh, yes. No, I've done that before. I've also gotten people on the street going, hey, Big Bang Theory. Oh, yes. Yep. yep That's another yeah. one where it's a. Uh, Oh, it's so insulting. What I, but the Silicon Valley one, you you just want to go with those cases. You want to go like, which one? Or you are you just saying I look like a human embodiment of that show? Or are you just reminding me I auditioned for that show and didn't get it? <laughs> yeah, I just agree. Agree. Yeah. And then, uh, yeah. Uh, and then I uh, say, uh, invite me over for dinner. <laughs> Matt, thank you so much. Thank for you, doing guys. This. It was my pleasure. It was thank really, you, Matt. really fun. It was lovely to meet. Bye. Right. Bye. Bye, Matt. Bye. Sorry, the last thing you heard me say was the weird invite me over for dinner thing. I will. <laughs> Bye. I love Bye, I love Matt. you in Silicon Valley and every other territory <laughs> of these United States. And beyond. Oh, thank wow. you. You too. Same. Bye, guys. Bye-bye. Okay, now let's get into it. Let's Wait, really fuck right. I'm still here. I'm still <laughs> here. I'm still oh, here. That was a little quick. That was a little quick. <laughs> All right, I'm leaving now. Matt, Hi, my daughter. Over here oh, says, God, like, it's so this... good to be off that dumb podcast. Matt! Wait, no, Matt, Matt you no. didn't disconnect. Huh? Oh, you've got a press oh. leave meeting. It's Bye. a two-step process. Oh, no. Oh, no. Is it just me, or is Matt getting more and more handsome? Oh, what he's already logged off. Now he's I was, gone. Now he's I was gone. hoping he was going to hear now that. Now he's gone. I'll never hear it. <laughs> <laughs> There's no way for him uh, to ever hear this. Uh, okay, Paul. Time to really fucking cut loose. What do you really think of this movie? <laughs> Hot seat time. If if Matt like called me up and FaceTimed with me beforehand, being like, "You gotta have my back about liking this movie, man," and I'm like, uh, "Okay, okay." They're gonna be coming at be us like, like buzzsaws. Okay, we gotta be united front here. <laughs> We're representing Los Angeles for this escape from L.A. Uh, no, no, uh, yeah, my, my feelings uh, continue to be the same.
I do not mean to be anti-LA when I say this. And I think I've sort of made this complaint before, but well, I remember at the time, even as a kid, like I was, I think I was 10 when this movie came out being like, escape from LA. Really? That's like what they came up with. And it's the same way I feel every time they announce a spinoff of a crime show where they're like, you love NCIS. And I'm like, yeah, I love NCIS. And like, what if they were in Los Angeles? Like, it's like, I always am surprised that they just brazenly do an LA spinoff. Yeah, where you see everything already uh, in every show. All the, uh, all the shows are in LA. Crocodile Why do we Dundee. Need that? Crocodile well, Dundee got brought to Los Angeles. That was, it was, that was important. And we did that on the Patreon. We did cover the Crocodile Dundee franchise on our Patreon. The trilogy. And it, it, I will say, it's an improvement to Croc 2. <laughs> it is. I, don't know if it you've is. Seen it. I actually think it's the second best Crocodile Dundee movie. I don't know if that's a controversial <laughs> opinion, but for me, of the CD3. Uh, oh my God. Um, uh, yeah. we, should, we should go through some of the plot a little bit or just at least yeah, run no, down definitely. The, this is the a segments plotty, of this movie. A plotty movie, although it has that escape from New York thing of like, it's just little vignettes. It's like, right. And then he goes here and he meets this guy. And then he goes we here and he meets this guy. Do yeah. like character by character, which I think would be fun to do. But I just want to read this oh, Carpenter thing from Starlog where he's talking about um, uh, how much women have had told him over the years how much they love Snake Plissken. It's like one of the things that women have said to me over the years about this movie is that what got them really attracted to this character was the fact that he's inaccessible to them and didn't try to get them. Snake doesn't care about anything but staying alive for another 60 seconds. He doesn't care about hurting you. He doesn't care about helping you. He doesn't care about taking you to bed. All he cares about is moving on. Wow. He's the ultimate bad boy. And I I do think that is a thing this film retains, right? Like, I think a lot of times this, you know, decades later sequel, when the, the filmmaker and the star are in very different places in their career, they kind of sometimes can misidentify what the core defining aspect of the character is. And I do think that's yeah. what works in this movie's favor is it is still this thing of Snake Plissken being like, fuck you. Or he didn't try to soften him by like, he's got a daughter or a son right. or yeah, yeah, yeah. Right, and uh, you, you find out a little more about him than you did in the first movie, but barely. He's still pretty much a mystery and he's just, he's like, he just has to keep moving. He's like a shark, yeah. you know? And, and that his motives yeah. are always very unclear, other than the fact that you know that he doesn't trust anybody. Right. Is Snake still cool in this movie? Or is I, it just that Snake is so cool in Escape from New York and Kurt Russell is cool, so there's enough residual coolness? Is he still, like, newly cool in this movie? I think he's still cool in this movie. I think the difference is that Escape from New York, the movie is as cool as he is. And in this, it's a little bit of a like, if you're so cool, why are you at this party? <laughs> sure. You know? I I asked myself that question a couple of times watching the movie last night. Of like, is Snake cool right now? Like, when I saw the uh, now... Uh, in that year, 1996, seeing the snake tattoo on his stomach, mm-hmm. I kind of thought, like, is that, that's a little dorky. That'd be like if a guy's, you know, nickname is Tugboat, and then he gets a <laughs> tattoo of a tugboat. You're like, yep, that is well, your nickname, dude. Okay. It's almost like the framing of this being the movie that he's in turns him into Wooderson. You know, where you're like, why are you hanging out with high schoolers? 
You keep oh. on telling me how cool you are. And he's wearing that kind of like long black duster. There's points where I was like, just complete the ensemble snake and put on a goddamn fedora. <laughs> if you want to look yeah. and hang out in a certain corner of the library. Well, even the music, it's bad rock music that like yeah, corny people era. listen to. <laughs> yes. You know, right. like the fashion is so corny. Like he's so out of touch. He really is. It's it, when that, uh, uh, those drive by, uh, uh, those people driving, those gang members driving by in a car shooting at each other. Yeah. And I was like, this is 2013 at its worst. And the, the cutting edge music they're listening to is like, Late era grunge. Yeah. yeah I mean, it's yeah. like, it, it's the problem of, I actually think the score to this movie rips and you have Carpenter bringing back his original theme and then working again with uh, Shirley Walker, who did uh, Memoirs of Invisible Man, is able to give it this sort of like full orchestral mm -hmm. sweep and magistry. But then anytime they do a needle drop, it's like a fucking like Ozfest reject. Ugh. Yeah. Yes. That really Rough. sticks out like a sore thumb. Yeah. Yeah. And isn't cool. To answer David's aggressively question. uncool, uh, really uncool. Paul, you have you have to weigh in on the thing we talked about in the Escape from New York episode, which is where do you think the snake tattoo oh, ends? Yeah, very important. Do you think it covers his whole penis? Some is it is coiled it around it? Does it not touch the penis? Is it just kind of you know cut off? And I'm so his... glad that Matt's gone because this but this is the kind of thing we couldn't ask Matt. Uh, but. Matt has his like amazing HR Geiger impression. So I feel That's like true. this is a Geiger area would be like this snake tail wraps around the uh, uh I think it yeah, goes from midsection mm -hmm. down past uh the genitals across the taint. <laughs> it wraps underneath. And, <laughs> oh, all the and way. Then, wow. And then completes with a final uh like stardust sparkle on his asshole wow well yeah, that's good now here's the thing did you guys notice in the beginning when what's his name is reading through all the info on pliskin right you're kind of getting Stacey like Keech? A, yeah exactly yeah you're getting like an update on like kind of where he's been at since the yeah. last movie and he his yeah. full name is listed as sd bob pliskin yeah yeah which i'm assuming is short for snake dick Bob <laughs> so he's got definite snake dick energy yeah, yeah. yeah. i think yeah. it's in the name yeah it's right there it's right there how silly must he be you can just tell from how he walks into a room that he has big snake dick energy. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> you can hear the rattle on this man <laughs> from a mile away uh so right that's the i mean what it, it is jamie lee curtis doing the narration again right at the beginning yes. Yes. Which I think they do I a really good job one, but... of setting up. Yeah, yeah. She's uncredited narrator in both of these. You set up this sort of like moralistic America. Uh, mm. L.A. has become, what, disconnected from the United States. Uh, it's a hell zone. And then you have Cliff Robertson as this Reagan-ass president and his daughter, Utopia, played by A.J. Langer. Um, <laughs> a legend. A legend. Langer. Yep. A legend. The right uh, honorable Countess yeah. of Devon. Is that true? Previous, yeah. Uh, she married the Earl of Devon in 2004. So if you go to AJ Langer's Wikipedia page, it uh, correctly identifies her as the Right Honorable Countess of Devon. Wait, the Earl? What's an Earl? 
It's like a kind of lord. You know, it's a fancy British it's landowning aristocrat. Well, he's above a God. lord. It's better oh, than a okay. lord. Uh, yes, she is the 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 um the Countess of Devon. So just congratulations wow. to AJ Langer, Rayanne from My So-Called Life. Obviously. Yes, and I know her mainly from because I was in a, a so-called life head, but um people under the the people under the stairs is what I know her from. Yes. Yes. That was sort uh, of her debut. Right. She God, oh, she, wow. she does this. She does Meet the Deedles. Mm-hmm. I believe she's the female lead in Meet the Deedles. I think she yes. plays a park ranger or something. And yeah. then and then she takes like a 14-year break from acting and then did private practice at Grey's Anatomy. Huh, but I guess I guess she she had the business of the manor to take care of, right? Yeah, she's the frickin' Countess of Devon. Okay, I have to say she's not uh, the actor I would have predicted had buried into royalty. But I guess I wouldn't have put money down on Meghan Markle either. It's just funny when someone <laughs> who's like the fourth lead on a TV show is like, "Oh, they're royalty now." Yep. Yeah, it ain't no Grace Kelly. But... Hey, yeah. was it Casper Van Dien also married into royalty? He he's royal and so he's like Dutch royalty or something, isn't he? I don't know. Anyway, look, Griffin, take us the, yeah. through the plot for crying out loud. I'm sorry. He's he was married to Catherine <laughs> Oxenberg, who is the daughter of Princess Elizabeth oh. of Yugoslavia. All right, but uh, they're divorced and remarried. Okay, so the the movie opens with this Jamie Lee Curtis intro, setting up the rules of this fucking uh, broken society. <laughs> Uh, earthquake uh, shatters Los Angeles, turns into an island. Uh, he declares, the president declares Los Angeles to be sinful and punished by God. And then he's uh, elected president for the rest of his life. Uh, he relocates the capital to his hometown of Lynchburg, Virginia. Why could I not get the word Virginia out there? Uh, but his uh, daughter falls for Cuervo Jones, who is the sort of Che Guevara figure of yes. this world. Yeah. Uh, I guess there's also a little bit of a, a sort of um, Patty Hearst idea going on here, right? Mm-hmm. Definitely. Because mm-hmm. she makes yeah. the video where she's like, I'm with them now and all that. And so they've stolen a weapon, like a satellite yeah. weapon that knocks out technology. Snake's job is to get that. It's not to rescue the president's daughter. He right. Did. That's the subversion yeah. is you think it's right. like, I have to save my daughter. She's been brainwashed by these terrible people. And the president's like, eh, find my daughter so you can take this fucking weapon from her and then shoot her point blank. I, she's a fucking hassle. Yeah. yeah. That's his mission. Wow. Now, Snake, of course, doesn't want to do it. He is least favorite thing in the world is being called out to go on <laughs> missions. This guy hates that. Uh, and he knows the trick. They bring you in for the meeting. You say you don't want to do it. Then they inject a thing in your neck. So he's like, too bad. I'm not going to let you hit me in the neck again. And they were like, Actually, too bad for you. We scratched you five minutes ago. I have to admit, that's infinitely less cool. The flashback to just a nail scratch on the back of his hand. Yeah. Uh, although I do appreciate the... They're they're trying with this sequel. They're not just gonna... Yeah, you know? Yeah, I, I, right, right. I like... I like that it's... Uh, it's not as good as the last idea, but... I like that it's a virus. To do something different. I like that it's a yeah. virus, and I like that it it's like too late. It's already in there. Yes. Yep. That was right. Cool. And here's the antidote. Uh, you got 48 hours, whatever it is. 10 hours. He's got 10 hours. Jesus. You're paired up with Eddie Murphy. <laughs> right. and, uh, <laughs> I, I always think people only have 48 hours to do anything. It is the best uh, 
ticking clock. Time. He's got ten hours. I apologize. You got two two nights, two days. Sure. Yeah. Perfect. You get you get one night to compare to the other night to see how the characters have grown and changed. Right. Exactly. You can the have ability two, to compare and contrast, and you can have two kind of like before bed sort of quiet conversation scenes that way. You know, it's sort of like eh, you know, sun's getting real low. Two rise and shines. Uh, what's that? Two rise and shines. Yes. <laughs> that reminds me of uh, when, I guess when um, Owen Wilson did I Spy uh, and read the script, he was like, I, I love the script, but where's the bathtub scene? <laughs> and everybody's like, what's the bathtub scene? It's like in Shanghai yeah. Noon. Uno mas. Would they have the bathtub scene? And they, they bond before they go into the final act as buddies. I was like, that's how he thinks. I, it is a really, when I watch movies, I go, they didn't have a, like a, a satisfying enough bathtub scene or they ignored the bathtub scene. Also the bathtub scene in Shanghai Noon fucking rules. It's the highlight of the movie. It's It's like the thing that that clicks the, the whole film into next gear. Um, it's the Shanghai light. It is the Shanghai light. (laughs) Um, I like this opening sort of cat and mouse thing of snake thinking like I've been through one of these escape from movies. I know how to fucking end this thing shooting them and Stacey Keach being like, we gave you a clip full of blanks. We fucking we've watched that movie as well. We know the snake Pliskin rules. You know, he drops down into the sewer. The people there have the guns pointed at him. Uh, The holograms. I like the hologram trick. The hologram thing is fun. And they it use it the right well. amount of times. Yes. 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 Right. Because you use it a lot at the beginning and then you let it like dip out of your mind for fucking 80 minutes. Mm-hmm. So when it comes back in the end, it's yeah. it's slipped away. There have been so many other ideas since then. And beyond that, yeah. uh, uh, Griff, we have to mention Stacey Keach, uh, who's yes. sort of playing the Lee Van Cleef role in this movie. He has the hair that he has in body bags, basically. And and you very briefly bring back uh, uh, Robert Carradine as well. He brings back like his two body yes. bags leading men. Paul, have you ever seen Body Bags, the like Twilight Zoney ripoff that uh, Carpenter made for Showtime in the nineties? Yeah, the sort of his like uh, throwing his hat in the ring of Tales to the Crypt right. for Showtime, where he plays a corpse who also works at a morgue. I saw it once, and it was on its premiere night in a hotel room with my family and my uh parents are into thriller horror suspense stuff and so it's like this might be a little too intense but let's sit and watch it and the thing i haven't seen it since i remember the car lowering on the guy oh yeah uh, yeah and splattering him and his like blood shooting out of his like an overhead shot of blood spraying out of his mouth um and i like John Carpenter is the like crypt keeper. I remember thinking he was like funny. that performance is great. But but the reason David brought it up is Stacy Keach's yeah. segment in that, which Carpenter directed as well, is he's a bald man who cannot get over his baldness, keeps on looking for solutions. He finally finds a, a radical miracle treatment being advertised on TV that ends up being like an alien transplant. They put alien worms into your skull and they take over your head. And then Stacey Keach in this movie essentially has the exact same toupee. (laughs) It's pretty funny. Except tied back and he's got a ponytail and all that. Yes. But Uh, but good casting. Like Lee Van Cleef gone. You need a modern analog. Stacey Keach is a, a fun choice. He does the job well. Um, also, speaking of the outside, I, I uh, 
the uh, the outside his theatrical release stuff like body bags mm-hmm. um a couple weeks ago i watched because uh, i was jonesing for a halloween fix but not halloween i watched that uh lauren hutton oh, yeah someone someone's watching yeah, movie yeah holy oh my gosh i loved it i mean i i had a. Uh, I bought it on like a box set with like uh, other Warner Brothers horror 80s releases. Watched it then, but then rewatched it, yeah, a couple weeks ago. Holy moly. It's Good. really strong. It's, it's really clean, strong. Clean, Hitchcocky kind of thriller. Just really I mean, watchable. Yeah. It also goes back to like everything that uh, Matt was saying, which is just like, Jesus Christ, that guy did that with like fucking 14 days of filming on like a TV movie budget and oh, three true. sets, you know? Like, yeah, that's where Carpenter's yeah. amazing, where it's like, how could you possibly make a compelling movie out of that? True. And then this is at yeah. the exact opposite end of the spectrum, not in terms of quality, but in terms of like, what if you let the guy do anything he wanted, whether or not he had the ability to pull it off? Ah, um, yeah. Okay, so then the first proper person he meets when he gets into the LA of it all is uh, Peter Fonda, really, right? Yes. Who's just because he his submarine washes on shore? Yes. Peter Fonda's just there, being like, "Hey man, Fucking what's submarine. up? Welcome to L.A." Yeah, uh, Peter Fonda, of dog. course, playing character named Pipeline. Yeah, sick. Oof. Who's a this who's is a, a, a surf Christian dog name? With <laughs> Christian name, John Pipeline. Um, uh, he's a, of course a year uh, before Yuli's Gold. Before yeah, the comeback. Wow. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> He's uh covered in uh acid rain burns on his face. Uh yes. But he's just always looking for a tasty wave. Yeah, I like uh I like Peter Fonda showing up and stuff in general. Uh yeah. I like I like a, a little dash of Fonda. Well, I like I'm him in you, uh three times. I'm glad you like it because it's never gonna happen again, David, unfortunately. Why? Oh, no. He's dead. I, right. Yeah, yeah. As I was just saying. I mean, you put present tense. I like him showing yeah, up well, in things. I'm just thinking of like the like post this, like the limey sure. 310 to Yuma. The, oh, I'm trying to think. There's another one I'm thinking where it's just like just a little Fonda, nothing crazy. Wild hogs. Yeah. <laughs> Wild hogs. <laughs> sure. That's Remember, definitely the other thing I was thinking of. <laughs> Does he do like an easy rider wink? Yes. I've never seen uh, yeah. Wild Hogs. 2007 okay. is Ghost Rider and Wild Hogs. Like it's like two different bites at the apple of like, oh, I'm commenting on the fact that I'm the easy rider guy. And one, it's Wild Hogs and he's like presented as like the platonic ideal of what these guys are trying to be. And then Ghost Rider, he's like, I'm the devil. He on is, a bicycle. He's, he's Mesistopheles or whatever, right? He is the <laughs> yeah. devil. Uh, anyway, yeah, so he meets Peter Fonda, but really just to say hello. Mm-hmm. I feel like the first person he really meets is Map to the Stars Eddie, right? Yes, which is much like Cabby. It's sort of like a quick meeting, a little color from a guy who's going to keep on popping up again every 15 minutes or so. Yeah, and who is uh, just, I guess, on a meta level or whatever uh i'm not using that word right but whoever does uh but like he's like a, <laughs> uh mark zuckerberg he's a, the one guy who uses car- that correctly yeah. <laughs> no we don't yes, no, sorry, carry on. he uses the word meta correctly mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. a character uh like a character a very beloved character actor mm-hmm. like it's it's also slotting a right a actor for an actress harry dean stan ernest borgnine who are who are the equivalents of the 90s yeah yeah that's the thing He's sort of a combo of cabbie and brains because obviously yeah. he's a little more of a bad guy 
uh, or whatever. He's a little more slimy than mm-hmm. Cabby is. Because Cabby's just like, I'm the Cabby. I love this. I live in the apocalypse. It's great. <laughs> Look at my head. I masturbate a lot. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> um and so right so he's kind of yeah he's kind of a combo of those two things he sells he sells i don't know he sells like audio guides he right? sells that's audio his, maps his, of the uh, stars his gimmick yeah this is also when they're starting the whole like everyone knows snake and kind of recognizes him right and he's also is kind of tracking his career as a criminal like he was an athlete kind of and they're all referencing yeah. cleveland all the time I felt like that um, was a, a funny riff on Hollywood and Los Angeles. Like, it's focused on celebrities. So it's like, I know that guy. Who's that? Up, Even including the joke of twice somebody says, you're shorter than I thought you would be, which is like the classic thing Kurt Russell and Stallone has to hear, right? Like, yeah, yeah. Uh, I don't know if that was just, I liked it because it added lore to Snake, but it also seemed like a funny... Uh, ribbon Hollywood. I agree. Yes. I agree. Yes. Buscemi also is just like, this is when he's just like cruising. Right. So many. Yeah. Everyone wants a little Buscemi in there. Yeah. I mean, uh, this, <laughs> I mean, this is Fargo. This like, is the same year yeah, as Fargo. Same year as right. Fargo. Right. right. And then Trees Lounge. <laughs> he makes his like directing debut the same year. Movie. Kansas City is the same year. This is coming after the year of Billy Madison living in oblivion, things to do in Denver when you're dead, Desperado. What a career. Year before that, Hudsucker Proxy, Airheads, Pulp Fiction. Like, he's just Ooh. kind of unstoppable right now. Yeah, and the yeah. year after that, this it's Con is Air. Con Air. It, 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 right. But it's, it, the thing with Con, him being in Con Air is the year after is when he goes from being the guy you see in every art movie mm-hmm. the every American indie movie to the guy you suddenly see in every blockbuster to, you know, do a little yeah. comedy like that. That's yeah. that's the big the big yeah. jump he makes. There is the guy who right when it becomes not just film fans, movie lovers recognize this person. Mm-hmm. Like when you know my parents are movie lovers, but like a, Steve Buscemi is somebody who when they come on screen, they love the scene now because they love Steve Buscemi. I mean, it is just like such a great magic trick. Someone like... in our blank check Reddit was talking, someone started a thread going like, can you define what the difference is between character actor and movie star? And they were getting sort of confused about the way we use those two terms. And when we sometimes say like, someone like Colin Farrell is a character actor who was misinterpreted as a movie star, or someone else is vice uh-huh, versa uh-huh. or whatever. And they were like, what are these distinctions? And like, who gets to be an A-list movie star based on bankability when there are other people like Steve Buscemi who like everyone knows and loves, but isn't considered a leading man in that kind of way outside of Boardwalk Empire. And someone in the comments said, like, I used to work for like, uh, you know, like a a, a, a test focus company or like a market uh-huh. research company. And we would like chart Q ratings of different actors and stuff. And Steve Buscemi always ranked as high as anybody. Like it was kind wow. of incredible where you'd go like, well, like Tom Cruise, of course, you know? like Harrison Ford, whatever. And it was like, Steve Buscemi, everyone knows Steve Buscemi. He transcends all ages, all races, right. all socioeconomic classes. Everyone loves him. Everyone has a good association. And not just a that guy. Everyone's like, oh, Steve Buscemi. They know him by name. That's true. And as, as right. you said, Paul, like he shows up, everyone gets excited. And whether it's in yeah. a fucking Coen Brothers movie or a Sandler comedy or a Bruckheimer yeah. action film, you're like, we're yep. getting a Buscemi bump. I mean, he got a song with the, remember the, she likes me for me. Yeah. 
Not because I look like Leonardo or the guy who played in Fargo. I think his name was Steve. He knows his he name. Knows He's just looking for a rhyme. I know. It's actually rude. Do the work to rhyme with Buscemi. Yeah, yeah you could have figured it out. And David, I loved when you're like a, a dash of Buscemi or or a, a, a dash of Fonda. Yeah, I imagine like a, a sprinkle, like somebody getting like a cheese grater and just having like a block of Buscemi, <laughs> and they just kind of like now you don't want the too Buscemi. much. Buscemi, <laughs> like, like, yeah. sort of like, say what? Just a over the stew. <laughs> he was okay. That's enough. That's enough, Buscemi. Thank like you. Like early two thousands, gun to my head, Steve Buscemi is my. Favorite actor, no hesitation. Sort of Ghost World, Steve Buscemi. I just think yes. at that moment when I'm yeah. like, you know, like really coming into my like film nerd boy shit, I'm just like, this guy's the best. He's like the best through yeah. line between every type of movie I like, and he, and he's always good. I'll uh, only uh, do this because we're celebrating the man and talking about him. Uh, he did a uh, directed episode of uh, Love, so oh, I got to work with him for like. Uh, a week to like 10 days. And he um, was amazing because, yeah, when you think about all the directors he worked with, you do have sort of a moment where you're like, well, what he's doing in some ways is the sum total of all of his experiences working with these directors yeah. and knowing what works for him, but also what he sees works for others. And the thing I noticed, and this isn't like a, a and everybody else is bad because they don't do this. It was just the unique thing he would do when he would direct. He would walk over and just like have such a soft spoken conversation with the actors that only the actors could possibly yeah. hear. Mm, right. It was very cool. He actually knew the frequency. Right. To speak at. Yeah. Almost. Yeah. He did the Magic so. Castle episode. I'm look. I looked it up. That's yes, such a good episode. Yes, yeah. Oh yeah, thank you. Yeah, but uh, I just uh, just going back down his, to his work and acting. Like I do think that sort of like gentleness yes. is something that's th like he's not just cast as the creep scumbag. Well, he's filled with contradictions. That's the thing. It's like when you cast him to play sweet, there's something a little creepy about him. When you cast him to play creepy, there's something kind of sweet about him. You know, he's yeah, simultaneously yeah, yeah. scary and funny. I mean, it's like that thing of just being like he was like a fireman. You know, like there are all sure these was, things huh? about him that are like hard to reconcile. Yeah. I mean, it's also I'm just looking at his fucking IMDb here as a director, but you forget like, oh, right. He directed Leap Day Williams, like maybe my favorite Whoa. episode of 30 Rock. Right. He did wow. Pine Barrens, which I haven't seen yet, but I know is the one that everyone cites as being like it's, the best Sopranos the, episode. Oh, Sopranos. Yeah, yeah it's yeah, the, yeah. It's the best cow. sort of it's one of the best made episodes of Sopranos beyond anything else. Right, like, not only has he directed on so many big shows, but, like, in many of the cases, he arguably did the best episode ever. Wow, good point. Yeah, yeah. Uh, he fucking True. rules. He's the best. And I love this character, and my fucking Zoom background, which we spent five minutes talking about before we recorded, is a model, which I wish there was more of this in the movie, a physical model of Buscemi and the hang glider that looks somehow both exactly like Steve Buscemi and, like, Buster Keaton. <laughs> With his little pork pie hat. But um, yeah, I'm all in on Maps the Star Eddie. I think he's like a fun character. And I think it's a good, what we're saying, like good analog. Steve Buscemi is like the Ernest Borgnine, you know, Harry Dean yeah. Stanton. Like he occupies yes. that same sort of legendary uh, tier. And then he, yeah. he also meets Taslima, played by Valeria Galino. The heart of the Who movie. is. She's the heart the of the heart. book. Uh, who, right. In the interviews, they really talk about her as being a really crucial character. 
And it's not like she's good. Yeah. But she does die, you know, before the third act even begins, really. Um, yeah. And it's, uh, look, it's similar to the Adrian Barbeau character, but she right. makes even less of an impact, I would argue. And it's not <laughs> Galeno's far- fault at all. It's it's a little. Um, uh, Gorley talks about this on his James Bonding podcast that with every post 71 Bond film, the press and promotion for the Bond girl always is. But I'm a different Bond girl. Right. My Bond girl is blank. And uh, it sounds like that's what they were trying to do. A little bit of uh, trickery in the promotion there, too. Of like, she is the heart of this it's movie, as Griffin different. said. Right. Yeah. But like, as we point out, like, Snake doesn't fuck. Right? Snake doesn't have time to fuck. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And it's the same kind of thing of like finding someone who's a little more vulnerable, who he's maybe starting to open up to a little bit, or at least seem to show some level of, if not affection, appreciation, respect for who then gets like killed off uh, pretty unceremoniously. She's good in this. I mean, there's that wild stat with uh, uh, Valeria Galino, who I uh, incorrectly in a previous episode said was, uh, I believe, the girl from Better Off Dead. I always get her and Diane Franklin confused, who's one of the medieval babes in Bill and Ted. Uh, Because Valeria Galino (laughs) is, is hot shots. And Big Top Peewee. But do you know that she's one of only... Rain Man. Sure. Do you know that she is one of only three (laughs) actresses to have won Best Actress from the Venice Film Festival twice? Holy whoa. Yes, absolutely. Uh, That's cool. I want to get the the three here. It is... uh, This is what's wild about it. Uh, Whatchamacallit. Uh, It's uh, Betty Davis won... For two movies in the same year, Marked Woman and Kid Galahad. Wait, count. no, am I? I wouldn't no, even no, no, count that because that just means they had Betty Davis. Fever I'm sorry. That year. The, the, <laughs> the three that the three that count are Shirley MacLaine, Isabelle Huppert, and Valeria Galino. Whoa! And the Galino movies are because <laughs> they're not uh, uh, no, a they're, tale they're Italian Galino movies. Grants. Yeah, a tale of love and per yes. amor vostro. Yes, a movie called Anna, which has a different name in Italian, right? And Taylor. Look, but she was just in Portrait of a Lady on Fire and she killed right it. Yeah. Uh, I feel like I just saw her in something else. Maybe it was Escape from LA is the thing I just saw her in. All right, she's in The Morning Show. She plays. Really? Uh, oh. Yeah, she plays like the new girlfriend of Steve Carell when he like wow. moves to Europe uh, in The Morning Show, season two. Check it out, Apple TV Plus dot com um whatever however it is you check that out uh she is also playing a muslim in this movie she's like i was a the only muslim in south dakota or whatever like that's kind of her line you know it's all weird everything about her in this movie you're like i have so many questions and the movie's like too bad she's dead snake's got a movie he's got to play basketball i was i i really uh love her as an actor and like uh, I think she's really great as a comic actor because especially in those Hot Shots movies, uh, but Big Top Pee Wee as well, just like playing something so straight and genuine. Uh, like there's no winking when she, it's like really spectacular. And I, my heart broke because I never knew she was in a movie around this era. I, I would have watched it. Like, yeah. so I saw her name go by on the screen at the beginning. I was like, wait, was that really? And then when she popped up in this like, Joan Jett hairdo uh, as this like, uh, yeah, I guess it was like a two and a half, three scene character. There was something strange too about how she would like 
she was kind of like following him like a feral cat that was falling in love or something. No, it is like after this, she almost exclusively goes back to Italian films. Like she'll make like one English language film every five years, maybe. Uh, That's where I lost touch. Yeah. You know, I'm going to a multiplex in Sioux City, Iowa. What the fuck am I going to see there? Um, it, but we we should not gloss over. I know we've we've referenced it, but Bruce Campbell as the Surgeon General of Beverly Hills, mm-hmm. in sort of uh, frightening uh-huh. makeup, right? Because Valeria Galino is with him for that. That's uh, right, she's a part of that. Uh, right, set piece. That's sort of what Matt was talking about about wanting more like L.A. shit in in the movie, like the roaming band of executives. I like that sequence because of this idea of like. What happens if society has collapsed and people are still, they're not going to be able to kick their addiction to plastic surgery? So they essentially become yeah. zombies needing to harvest new parts for new surgeries. I love that sequence. And then, like, I thought there was some real, like, gross, grotesque stuff that just, like, was going by quickly on screen. I was like, hey, respect. That's awesome. You're just like, you know, this thing holds up and is weird and gross. Uh, yeah, thinking about it, though, with that being, like, the sole sort of, like, High culture, correct me if I'm wrong, but that might be the only target, high culture target about Los Angeles. Not saying Los Angeles is filled with high culture. It's just, its shots are kind of coming at um, uh, street gangs. I'm not saying John Carpenter is a toxic bad whatsoever. I'm just saying like the targets in this movie are like, oh, you could do... Um, I I guess you have the big baddie president, but you could do like what is kind of the like questionable sources of power yes. in Los Angeles. Yeah, yeah yes. Yeah, yeah. This movie could do more L.A. specifics, especially being directed by a guy who's gotten so burnt out on the industry. You imagine he has more sort of like pointed barbs he could have thrown at the culture. The, the story I just want to say very quickly is that uh, they both. Uh, Carpenter, but even more so, Kurt Russell wanted Bruce Campbell for this because they loved the Evil Dead movies. They were like fans, and they were like, he'd be like a fun addition to this world. And as Bruce Campbell tells it, uh, when uh, Bruce Campbell showed up on set, the first thing Kurt Russell ever said to him was, hey, Bruce, say work shed. And he was like, what? And it's there's this weird cut in Evil Dead 2, a movie we'll never talk about on this podcast. Where because of the edit, he says workshed weirdly. And Wyatt Russell, now movie star, apparently was like an Evil Dead fanatic as a kid and got his dad really into the movie. And I think Wyatt Russell was on set with him and Kurt was like, I'm going to get him to say workshed for you. But Bruce Campbell was like blown away that. that he not only was like that big of a fan of his work, but that he knew sort of like the esoteric of the fan, the, sort right. of like sort of yeah. like a little love it. Little, it was like a right. meme, right? Yeah. An early meme was that that love word delivery. It. Yeah, you know, I will say this about early meme. You made me think of like um, one thing about this movie is it's good to remember that people probably well, I guess VHS existed, but like fans wouldn't wouldn't have been as deep. No, with move, you know, like this is the whole thing about the movies now. It's like the fans just rewatch things. It's so everything's on YouTube. It's easy to like see clips and have this total recall for so much stuff. And back then, it was sort of like people remembered the vibes of Escape from New York and the vibes of Snake, but they they don't need, I guess, all of the crazy callbacks that like a legacy sequel would do now. And I wonder if it's because it's from the maker himself, 
So you're a little, you're maybe putting the brakes more on the self-referential stuff, whereas a Jaja Abrams, uh, like, feels like he has to do fan service thing because he's not the holder, the keeper of the, well, the Jedi texts. Yeah, but I also feel like nowadays the, the guys fall into it sometimes, you know, still where they're just like, That's I true. guess I got to play the hits. That's the expectation. I mean, I, I see so much weird, like, language around that of like, oh, this filmmaker proved that they're a real fan. They put the things in to show us the real fans that they, too, are a real fan and they get it. And it's like movies are trying to pass this test with like the the fans yeah. who have appointed themselves guardians of of the property or whatever. I mean, there's this whole thing that like JJ dug up about how badly Isaac Hayes wanted to be in the movie. And Carpenter and Deborah Hill were like, you died. And he's like, I don't care. I want to be back. And they're like, no, you're dead. There's no way around it. You got shot by the president. You're done. And he was like, well, maybe he didn't have to die. He comes back from the dead. They they nursed his wounds. He comes back in a dream sequence. And like <laughs> Helicopter both like, no. And it's like, it would have been so easy to just go like, he got a lot better, you know, and bring back yeah, Isaac Hayes a year and later, get a cheap pop from it. A year later, they'd be bring Ripley back in Alien Resurrection right. with some cloning. Right, right. And it's just like, he had no interest in playing that game. I'll come up with new characters who are fun in their own ways, which the equivalent to him in this really is the Pam Greer character which we can talk about is the least successful aspect of this whole movie, even more so than the special effects. He wanted to play this character. He lobbied to play Carjack. Okay. Which would have been Wait. even worse. Yeah, that wouldn't have worked. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I don't think that would make sense. He wanted to, he wanted to fucking play uh, Hershey yeah. La Palmas with a wig on or whatever. Well, I'm glad that didn't happen, like I guess. A, yeah. Like, a, I'm trying to think of... What's a sequel where they're like, we love this character so much, this actor so much, we're going to have him play a second character in the sequel. City Slickers 2. Oh, sure. Where he That's plays the example like that the immediately twin, comes right? to mind. Right. Or the brother. I That's say, how you do it. Right. I rewatched City Slickers 2, uh, or City Slickers 1 recently. Oh, okay. Okay. I'm sorry. All right. I'm sure. sorry. David just gave me the most disgusted face I have I was, ever seen. I was seen. like, you rewatched City Slickers 2? A near two? decade of friendship. I rewatched City Slickers 1 recently. Jack Collins is in like nine minutes of that movie. I had forgotten that he dies within the first hour of the film and that he's introduced late and that he essentially has three scenes. Like he has the one big monologue. I forgot how little of it he's the one the one big the monologue one he, it's like the one thing the one, the one big monologue but it is it's that one scene and that scene happens at like minute 42 and then like five minutes later he's dead and then the main plot kicks in i always remember his death being like the big act three thing yeah same it's i haven't watched that in a maybe I he dies very very early in that film anyway the pam greer thing's a fucking disaster uh, it is just like, you know, it's, look, I love Pam Greer. I like watching her in any movie. It's, it's the whole fuck. And we don't need to go down this rabbit hole, but it's like so much of the stupid alarmist fucking shit that happens from transphobes still to this day, I think is rooted in how trans people were depicted, uh, in the nineties more so than ever. I feel like where they're always uh -huh. treated as like con artists and tricksters. You know, when people go tie themselves into knots over this idea of like, 
A guy's putting on a wig so he can sneak into a woman's bathroom and see them peeing and shit, which is like not a real life thing. I think it's always because these comedies and these action movies always present it as like some comedic device, some dishonesty, you know, someone trying to like, it's yeah. their sort of own version of like That's a good witness protection yeah. or whatever. Uh, you know, they're often villainous. Uh, I mean, even something like The Crying Game, which has, you know, uh, a, a comparatively a far more sympathetic portrayal, it still is a movie that is hung on the twist. You won't believe this mm. fucking twist. The twist is uh -huh. the misrepresentation of this person, you know? Uh -huh. um, so yep. it's like, uh, you know, fucking obviously uh, judging it through the modern prism, it's not like this movie is is solely responsible for this entire phenomenon but it's like it's one of those things that just like i'm watching this movie i'm vibing on it for as silly as it is it bums me out we get to that fucking sequence yeah. especially when he's like feeling up her legs and making dick jokes and stuff it fucking sucks it sucks no good and also like i think a sophisticated audience member in 1996 watched that would have been like this sucks yeah I, that's, <laughs> like, that's, that's the, like, not obviously there's a zillion movies from this era that have that kind of like the, the the move of the sort of like well wait a second you know but yeah. I do I do think as much as it's easy to say like hey you know hey, it was like thirty years ago twenty you know yeah at the time there were plenty of people who saw that and rolled their eyes like Absolutely. it's sort of worth noting you know like, well, and, and, yeah, oh and I wasn't I'm sorry I wasn't saying Griffin uh, wasn't saying no this. I know he I wasn't just, I, just I know he wasn't. Like, I'm just yeah yeah yeah, yeah. Uh, no, I, I'm just saying like the defense that a is, lot of people and yeah, it's yeah. it's not untrue obviously that mores change and the way that movies and culture deals with things change obviously that is true but like this the whole sequence the voice you know like the whole way everything is oh, executed is just it off sucks. and just it like it's i, I just, no and i think ugh. you're making a good point david which is like you know aside from the 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 social ugliness of it it also i think by 1996 was pretty fucking hacky like, this isn't an interesting yeah. thing, a move for a movie to play, you know? And if you go to, like, the yeah. 70s, yeah. you have well, more interesting it, portrayals of right. trans people in Dog yeah. Day Afternoon yeah. and shit. Yeah. Yeah. By no, the 90s, definitely. you're in this corridor of, like, Ace Ventura and this movie. Well, yeah, I mean, there's movies like Flawless, like, not that they're, like, entirely, you know, there's movies that are trying. Flawless comes after this, but yes, Flawless is an example I thought of as one of the few movies in the 90s that feels like it makes a, a real effort. You know, like there's an episode of ER that's sort of famous that like you watch it now and you're like, this is 80% of the way to basically, right. you know, like, you know, there's things like that, but Flawless is like a 70% movie. Yeah, sure. I do think that this movie, it's just like LA, future LA is crazy, man. We've got, yeah. you know, X, we've got this, you know, and then, then this is just trying to sort of be on that energy and it's and it's a bit silly. Oh, yeah, the attitude of, like, Los Angeles is a city full of fruits and nuts. Yes, uh, yes exactly. Like, yeah, that's, yeah. like, the final punctuation mark of that idea is that scene. Right, yeah. you've got, it, you know, what if Valeria Galino was a, a Muslim and uh, Pam Greer was a transgendered, you know, uh, right. super spy or whatever. From the mind of John Carpenter. <laughs> right. right. <laughs> um, but, yeah, I mean, this, the, this, the... Uh, fucking uh pam greer uh sort of pat down sequence is sandwiched in between the surfboarding and the hand gliding uh yes uh yeah oh right that's like when the uh, movies can be and the basketball really right. yeah can be really strange is when they're in relief to some just like truly bonkers 
<laughs> stuff. Yeah. Like that because the movie I feel like is maybe that's why it felt like the brakes kind of got hit there because it was it's such a I mean it's a it's a anti-authority movie but it's pretty giddy and it's like anti-authoritarianism like it, it's having fun yeah and you have three kind of like roller coaster sequences there regardless of how well they are or are not executed yeah. you know it's like yeah did you guys notice that funny like pg-13 eyesed version of the line from the thing when the head walks away and he says you got to be fucking kidding me which is amazing so funny in this when they're like surfing down the ravine Buscemi drives by and he goes you gotta be kidding me oh you brought it back Uh, and made it worse (laughs) it is weird that Buscemi is just casually driving in that scene when there's a tsunami like he doesn't notice he doesn't look behind him until uh, snake surfs up like you'd think he'd be like oh shit there's a column of water coming towards me the spatial relations make like no sense but I just I just like that he keeps on like like he's a little bit like fucking Benny in the mummy where he just like keeps on showing up again and you don't know whether he's gonna fuck you over or help you Right, but he's indestructible. He's like a cockroach. Um, the, the only sequence we haven't really talked about is the basketball. Not that there's like a ton to talk about there. It's just sure. it's just a funny little like moment for the movie to slow down in a way. Right? You know what I mean? Like, did you know? Yeah, did you know that? Like during that, like because that's obviously like a the Colosseum right. yeah. gladiator fighting. I didn't know this, but apparently that basketball gladiator kind of in the round or in the Colosseum scene is what inspired Ridley Scott to make Gladiator. Really? He saw that and he was like... No, I'm kidding, I'm kidding. God, I'm kidding. we took you at fucking face value. Slick uh, Willie all over again. No, but it is. It's like you're do- you're doing the, the slag fight again, right? It's like you need yes. another, the equivalent it's just, of this. Right? But it's just weird that it's like, ha, 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 you're doomed. Now here are the rules. You have 10 seconds per shot. Like, <laughs> right. you know, like that it's just weirdly specific even though there's like machine guns trained at him. <laughs> but, the rules are really funny yeah. it's like you do want somebody at that like at every uh you know cocktail party or a friend gathering where you're playing a party you want somebody who's like okay here are the steps <laughs> and directions because he really yeah. does a uh, command authority um so but yeah i do like that i just i i like that it's sort of hard in a mundane way that i guess that's what the problem you know it also, I'm just realizing, I love the comparison that you made earlier about that, that it is like a video game where you have the 10 second, you get the hand, and as long as it leaves the hand. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, it also reminds me of like a basket, uh, a, a kid, a group of kids come up with the back in the backyard where they're like, okay, you get 10 seconds. Uh, the ball can leave <laughs> the hand on the 10 second, but then you have to run back. Like uh, perfect, uh, yes, it feels scene. like uh, basketball rules. Uh, mm-hmm. I also I think Russell plays really well without betraying the thing that Carpenter talked about of like Saint Pliskin only cares about making it through the next sixty seconds. The scene where he finally like comes face to face with Utopia, and he she realizes that not only was he not sent there to save her, but that he was sent to kill her. There's like sort of the yeah. silent exchange where you see Snake doing the calculation 
of like, well, I don't believe in this person getting killed and I cannot believe how cold it is the president wants his daughter assassinated, but I also don't want to die. And there's yeah. this little like glimpse of humanity in him in the fact that I that, like, that yeah. he sort of lets her survive. Yeah. Yeah. I admired that moment a lot because I did think like it helped me understand how much restraint there had come before it that I wasn't necessarily clocking. Like right. I, I said earlier, like, oh, they didn't give him a son or a daughter or like an ex-wife who's you got to get his marriage back on track by the end. But being like pretty decisive with that one moment. uh. Yeah, it felt good. It felt good to see Snake just be a little yep. uh, kinder, gentler. Anyway, he uh, uh, blows up uh, Cuervo with a rocket uh, from his helicopter. In this kind of Disneyland-esque... Um, uh, is it? There were so many, which I guess is a little bit of the late 90s thing, and to this day, like the multiple climaxes but i just i kept thinking like well this has to be the moment they top right. out uh they top out at disneyland and that it kept going right uh the happy kingdom is what they call it oh i'm sorry yes. happy kingdom. He gets the sequence which is like well he's bringing it all back around to like the same ending as escape from new york right like now we're just down to the like last few players he's he's completed his mission they reveal that they fucking punked them pretty goddamn hard. That Plutoxin mm. 7 was just a minor head cold. It's a, right? It's uh, the flu. They say it's a minor it's flu. flu. Yeah. Right. Yeah. It sounds, sounds a lot like what we've been doing with two years. Something mm -hmm. fake right. that yeah. they exactly. put in right. us intentionally. That they're just telling us about to make us mad. <laughs> the news trying to make us angry. Um, but but yes, I'm just warming you up for next week's guest, uh, Jim Brewer. He's coming on. Yeah, we had to. Have, I I mean, I, I I said no until I saw that clip of him on stage, and I was like, oh well, this is a <laughs> no brainer. We gotta have this on. Well, look, I always believed in science. I was always someone who thought we should listen to our scientists. But then I saw Jim Brewer do a savage takedown of people who listen to scientists by making them sound like parrots and doing a little parrot walk on stage. I mean, I think he might have played like a lab scientist in some Monkey Boy sketches, oh, sure. the Chris Kattan ones. And Goat Boy himself. Goat Boy himself, a scientific experiment gone awry. He understands the evils, <laughs> the ills of science, the slippery slope better than anyone. He was Goat Boy. <sighs> Guys, we're we're literally bigger than jim brewer now do we have to do we have to like we're actually giving him a platform right Are we i'm trying to down? be rude to yeah exactly does this actually count as punching down is that how bad it's gotten for jim brewer have we crossed the threshold <laughs> um, that's so funny 10 10 years ago i think it was around like 2011 10 i remember somebody checking my jim brewer punching down really? punching down wasn't the word yet but somebody was kind of like eh. i think uh you don't have to be thinking about Jim Brewer. I wrote so a Jim Brewer but, tweet last night, and then I screen capped it, and I sent it to David and our friends, the Doughboys, and I said, I'm just sending this so I don't tweet it out. Yeah, I have a very mean Jim Brewer way. thing I want to tweet, and I don't want Jim Brewer fans in my yeah. mentions, so I'm just posting yeah, you this don't need for you That's three. Good. And then uh, thank you for letting me get it out of my system. Anyway, this final sequence of the movie, you're like, what's the snake double, triple, cross, reverse he's going to pull, right? Because we've seen him swipe mm -hmm. out the tapes in the first movie, destroy the other one after the president passes his moral test. 
they do like six fake outs here, right? He gives the wrong remote. He's a hologram. Yeah. Yes, yes. There's been a switcheroo, right? Yes. Um. Yeah. He uh. He just maybe had a big list of switcheroos that he wanted to get get through. And then there's that moment that most of these movies build up to, where like the present goes like, "Shoot my daughter! Shoot her right now!" And they go like, uh, "Sir, you're still on camera." And you assume that's gonna be the thing, like Coco style, that takes him down. And he's like, "I don't care. Everyone in America should watch me shoot my daughter." On camera. <laughs> like, it's such a good choice for just what the level of rot is here. And his whole argument yeah. about, like, I'm, I'm holding morality together with my bare hands. Snake, if you don't listen to me, this whole society will fall apart. And this is where I just got so amped. And I was like, are they going to fucking do it? Are they going to fucking do it? And Snake's like, yeah, good. Everything sucks. Bye. Yeah. Boom. Exactly. Yeah. That's the whole thing of, like. Things have gotten bad enough that, like, come on, Snake, you wouldn't end yeah. all technology. I would. It's like, I think we should. Yeah. I mean, he doesn't say it like that. And they just do, he like, says, Snake, do you understand Rrr. what will happen if you push the button? He's like, yeah, I'm gonna push it. <laughs> it's uh, so good. And then fucking welcome to humanity. Welcome to the human race. <laughs> welcome to the human race. Final line, Snake Plissken fucking finds a cigarette, lights it up. That's the only light on the planet. And he says, look into the camera. I, I love the, the finding race. the cigarette pack and point it up. I think I probably grade this movie on a curve because I like the ending so much. But it reminds me of the Terminator 3 thing where you spend this whole movie <laughs> being like, how do you get around the unavoidable cynicism and inevitability of doom baked mm. into this premise? And you just go like, you don't. You end the movie with, I guess yeah. we fucked up. Everything has to be ruined. <laughs> like that ending of Terminator 3 where they're like, yeah, no, it's impossible. The robots are going to take over no matter what. Anyway, enjoy the next 20 years in this bomb shelter. <laughs> it's like, my mind was blown when I saw that. And I couldn't believe, even after spending months watching Carpenter, that the, this movie just fucking ends this strong. Truly, truly. It's yeah. so good. It's a great ending. I don't know. Carpenter's like, it's 10 times better than Escape from New York. Which I do appreciate. He's wrong. He's wrong. Yeah. It's, a, it's a fun, silly, absurd movie with a great ending. Yeah, and I, I, I think that chase through the market was my favorite of the middle of the movie. Because uh, that was where the one I felt like the ideas did coalesce a little better that it wasn't... It seemed like what it was getting most at, like, what is, like, Los Angeles, which is, it wasn't just two things in opposition with each other, two time periods or two lifestyles. It was just like that marketplace and the chase through it with like motorcycles, horses, cars. It did seem just like this cool, like collapsing of eras and time that I was like, oh, that would have been a really cool thing to explore that this island is almost just like centuries of pop culture crap yes. just getting like dumped onto this island and that's like what snake has to wade through more marilyn um, monroe murals james dean statues um <laughs> there was a video game announced for like pretty much every system that was never released it was announced Damn. for sega saturn sony playstation panasonic m2 and pc and was not released for any oh, of boy. them there was a comic book can i just read this very quickly they yeah. released one issue, a one-shot, Marvel Comics in 1997, called The Adventures of Snake Plissken. I'm just going to read exactly what it says here on the Wikipedia. The story Please. takes place sometime between Escape from New York and his famous Cleveland Escape mentioned in Escape from L.A. 
Snake has robbed Atlanta's Centers for Disease Control of some engineered metaviruses and is looking for buyers in Chicago. Finding himself in a deal that's really a setup, he makes his getaway and exacts revenge on the buyer for ratting him out to the United States police force. In the meantime, a government lab has built a robot called ATACS, Autonomous Tracking and Combat System that can catch criminals by imprinting their personalities upon its program in order to protect and anticipate a specific criminal's every move. The robot's first test subject is Snake. After a brief battle, ATACS copies Snake to the point of fully becoming his personality. Now recognizing the government as the enemy, ATACS sides with Snake. Snake punches the machine, destroys it, reasoning, I don't need the competition. Yeah! Snake, my man! <laughs> that sounds fucking bananas. <laughs> uh... I, yeah, the the when you were saying the center of the disease control stuff, I was thinking like, oh, the stuff this movie, um, and I don't care like if a movie that takes place in the future predicts things sure. or not. It's just maybe a, a fun question to ask later when you watch it. But uh, the thing I thought like that they got totally wrong was that like Disney would be bankrupt as opposed to the <laughs> thing that owns yes. everything. Yes. <laughs> uh, also, I thought with that Disney stuff, um, it's interesting that Kurt Russell was a Disney kid. Yeah, Disney Factory. Yeah, like the kid. ultimate Disney boy. And the yeah. That's true. On yeah. Walt Disney's, uh, the last thing Walt Disney wrote, Kurt Russell's name is on the list that was next to his bed when he died. I know. I just, yeah. God. That, that's it's more sure. interesting uh, than Rosebud. So he's biting the hand, <laughs> Kurt. <laughs> it's um, more interesting than Rosebud. It is. Why did he write that Of course. That down? Walt yeah. Disney had to like sit it's up in bed and was like, Kurt Russell, what? and then like lay yeah. back down. I said more interesting than Rosebud. I just like, yeah. I can't crack that one. <laughs> I think about it a lot. I'm like, what was the implication there? Right now, a little like uh, eight-year-old um, Kurt Russell is getting thrown into a like a oven. <laughs> Beat Bert. All right. I'm saying we play. A la Rosebud Slab. No, I'm I not got it. No, we're with you. We're with you. Oh, I know. Okay. We're with you. Uh, the other, uh, one other thing, uh, just a factoid I really want to quickly share yes. about They Live because I would have, I, uh, Gorley and I did a commentary about it and I had a couple hunches. Uh, one, I couldn't remember uh, uh, the title, but later, guys, do you know They Live came out the same month, October 88? As Noam Komsky's manufacturing consent, <laughs> that movie is about manufacturing that consent. I can't; it's mind blowing to me. The other thing uh, uh, um, about they live. I'm now just thinking of you. This whole episode, being just sitting like, on. I gotta it. get that out. <laughs> Believe me, I was trying to find an opening, <laughs> and I never could. Um, uh, so I just, uh, yeah, I needed to. Uh, Oh, oh, and the other thing about They Live um, was, I think, mm. you know, he used to work with Dean Cundy, mm -hmm. of course, the DP. There is a guy, uh, the guy who plays Red in the Back to the Future movies. Yes. Who, who's like the, the turncoat. He looks like Cundy. And, mm. and that exact same beard, time, kinda, Cundy yeah. made the jump to the Hollywood machine. And that whole character is about just come to our side. It's so much easier. Anyway, just something to chew on. I, 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 I think he's subtweeting guys... Jim uh, Dean Cundy, basically. I this, do. This is I do. George I think... Buck flower. You're talking about, right? Cause yes, he also sorry. plays yes. the guy. He's in a lot who, of, uh, he kills of himself with the broom in village of the damned. Yeah. But, yeah. Ooh. Very he's interesting. In many carpenters. 
Very, very interesting observation. Paul, thank you so much for doing the show. No, what are you doing? <laughs> Griffin? Box office game? Yeah, you can't take us out of the show. I wasn't trying to play end the it prematurely. Box My brain is oh. just burnt. Let's play the box office game. <laughs> hey. Just got to play the box All office right. game. Then we're done. This movie okay. uh, came out on August 9th, 1996. Griffin. Summer release? Okay. Opened to $8 million, number three at the box office. Not, Not very good. Nope. Would this have been the release, Paramount's subsequent release to Mission Impossible? Yeah. I guess, I guess mm. this was like their number that two summer? summer movie. Yeah. Yeah. Let's see what else do they have even in the. They've got uh, Harriet the Spy, Mission Impossible, and Primal Fear. Kind of a light summer for them. Yeah. Primal um, Fear, a classic summer blockbuster. Yeah. People love it. <laughs> um, you so number it's not number three Griffin number one is I believe your least favorite film of all time opening this week. Oh, Jesus, it's uh Francis Ford Coppola's Jack. It's Jack. It's my go-to this answer movie, for my uh, least favorite film. Yeah, this movie got housed at the box office by Jack. I know. Jack is one of those movies Ooh. though where like they really sold the premise of like it's like big but with Robin Williams and then you watch it and it's like no it's like Bill Cosby telling him he's gonna die. I mean he is gonna die. They sold the comedy really hard, which there's not yeah. much of. Right. I wonder if like somebody could do like a, a, a like a Mark Harris style uh, book that's like reverse of Pictures at a Revolution, where it's like in 1996, every film brat. Like death uh, rattles. In the 70s. <laughs> right. Yeah, all of their death rattles came in that six right. months. <laughs> that is an interesting, like, the, to to weigh their relative, like, 96, you have, like, De Palma's making his biggest, most successful movie ever. Mm -hmm. Coppola's making yeah. his worst. Yeah. Uh, Spielberg took that year yeah, off. He's, he's working he on the next year. Right, Amistad and Casino's Lost 95. World. Does Scorsese not have a 96? Isn't Kundun 96? Maybe it's not. Let's see. I think Kundun's 97. Kundun's 97. So he took that year off. Yeah. He's taking it. But in, the about. Lost World, I mean, if you just did calendar year or sure. whatever you call it, the 12 month yeah. span of 96 to 97, yeah. you could make an argument. I think Spielberg might feel it that like the Lost World is like a, you could have an argument for that being a low and point. And Amistad, because Amistad's just, the same yeah. year. Yeah. Um, yeah. Okay. Number two at the box office. It's a good idea, Paul. Number two at the box office <laughs> is a uh, courthouse thriller. Hmm, it's um, not Primal Fear. No, <laughs> Primal Fear is lower at the box office. Okay. Um, sort of a star maker. Um, is it the uh, Time to Kill? Sounds like Primal it's Fear. It's Time to Kill. Yeah. McConaughey, ah, Maddie Mac. One of the one of Good. one of the sweatiest movies ever made. Like mm. it, not in terms of it's working hard to convince you something, just everyone is sweating so much yeah. in yeah. that movie. <laughs> uh in the literal sense. A time to kill. Yes, he a deserved to, to die. And I hope he burns in hell. Um, uh, not a good movie, but uh, very watchable. Yes. Yeah, because you you did a big uh I watched uh, all the Grishams. And that's a lower one for you. They're all middling, right? Well, the firm rules. The, 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 firm. the firm is so yeah. good. Um, I mean, David, but, you have yeah, referred to it. those types of movies as, quote, like drugs for me. Yes. <laughs> like, I, even yeah. when you don't like them, you're like, that shit's just like drugs for me. Right. I, I would say The Rainmaker, <laughs> good time. Uh, which is uh -huh. actually Cop Coppola's follow-up to Jack, is very underrated and basically excellent. 
The others are all oh, okay. middling to bad. I mean, the Pelican Brief is like Denzel and Julia, so it's like, yeah. you know, it's pretty fun, yeah. but it's kind of overlong. Uh, A Time to Kill is like, it's Joel Schumacher and uh John Grisham and Akiva Goldsman trying to grapple with, you know, racism in the South. It's just like, they're overmatched. Right. It's I mean, just, we've, you know. we've joked about doing the Grisham miniseries right, on Patreon. Like a, right, yeah. At least right. do like five of Pick them. Pick and choose. I mean, the run is firm Pelican Brief client, time to kill. The Chamber doesn't exist. The Rainmaker. Altman's Gingerbread Man. Which isn't the worst thing in the world. I I mean, all all those kind of do pick at your filmmakers, though. It's like every Mm -hmm. auteur got a bite at the Grisham apple. Uh, They're two Schumachers, Schumachers. Coppola, and Altman. Uh, yep. Runaway Jury, which would step on our Gary Fleeter miniseries. Yeah, that'd be tough. <laughs> that would <laughs> right. eat into our Fleeter time. <laughs> and then and then it's like, oh, he does a fucking, there's a baseball drama called Mickey with mm-hmm. Harry Connick Jr. And then, of course, we all remember that John Grisham wrote the novel that Christmas with the Cranks was based off of. He, he sure did. Yes. Um, Who directed that? That was produced Joe by... Joe Roth directed that. Chris Columbus, And, and, right. and Chris okay, Columbus wrote it, yeah, and produced it. Yeah, so that's that's um, Joe Roth, uh, one of the few exec slash filmmakers, no. somebody who bounces back and, and forth. Like, I think that's an interesting. Please let me make another wait. movie, please. And then he yeah. does, and you're yeah. like, "This is bad." And he's, yeah. like, he's like, "I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry." I'm sorry. I'm d- <laughs> the next one's gonna be better, I promise. <laughs> Just make us another Coupe de Ville, you <laughs> asshole. Freedom Land. <laughs> uh, yes. Okay. Uh, now, time to kill number. Uh, two, Escape from L.A., number okay. three. Number four, Griffin, is the summer's biggest hit. Of 1996, it's not Mission Impossible, or it is? No. What am I for? Oh, it's not Independence Mission. Day. Independence Day. Of we course. We talking Today about Today we it. celebrate. Yeah. yeah. Uh, of course, because it's late August. That thing has made mm-hmm. $256 million. Number five, a children's book adaptation. Very good Harriet the Spy. Film. No, although that is that is in the see. Uh, I'm trying to go know, for the easy the guesses of movies you've just already right, literally named. No, it's <laughs> okay. better than Harriet the Spy. Um, Matilda. It's Matilda. Danny DeVito's Matilda. Hey. Good movie. Harriet the, Harriet the Spy is very good though. Matilda is kind of great. Yeah, Harriet the Spy. I remember being those, totally solid. Yeah, it's very good. Those are all very much on the cusp of a second Clinton presidency and we got the wind at our back and the sun on our face. So, yeah. Uh, Some other movies. Phenomenon, the Travolta film. Uh, Chain Reaction, the uh, Keanu Morgan Freeman chemical uh, reaction drama. Uh, Courage Under Fire with uh, Denzel and Mm -hmm. Matt Damon and Meg Ryan. Um, The Nutty Professor, Griffin. Hey. Buddy Love. Kingpin. Kingpin. Kingpin's a good movie. Wow. Two comedies. Ha- Two very funny comedies mm-hmm. have, that summer. Have That's I ever nice. said that uh, when I was a kid, the classic Muppet Show sketch, uh, Menomina, which was obviously a, a, a major text for me uh, in, my, <laughs> yeah. in my growth as a person, uh, I thought he was saying Phenomenon. And so when I oh. saw the movie Phenomenon, I was like, <laughs> why are they naming a movie after that Muppet Show sketch? I think my parents told me that. Like, I think I was like, what's he saying in Menomina? And they were like, I don't know. It sounds like he's saying phenomenon. And I was like, what's phenomenon? They were like a bizarre occurrence. And when that movie came out. It's like a movie. It's coming out in 10 years. Yeah. Right. I was like, why is this very serious movie (laughs) sharing a title with the funniest Muppet Show sketch ever? 
Phenomena. <laughs> do, 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 do. That's now I wish that John Travolta movie was called Phenomena. That's that's the the That'd the swap I'd like yeah. to do. The sketch is phenomenon. Yeah. The movie's called Menomena. <laughs> um, hey, I said it before. I'm going to say it again. Paul, thank you so much for doing the show. Oh, thank you guys. Thanks for having me and Matt well, no thanks to Matt. Uh, it was so he much fun. He fucking bailed early and he <laughs> no, didn't survive. Matt, he's he the failed best. the test. And he- I <laughs> know uh, it was so much fun. I, I really uh, thank you so much for having no, me. No, so uh, so, so happy we couldn't do this many series without you guys. It was inevitable. It was top of our list, and uh, we we fucked up with scheduling, and then <laughs> didn't weren't able to record until after uh, Matt and his wife had welcomed a baby. So we're appreciative of any amount of time that he was able to oh, give yeah, us. Yeah, no, it all worked out. Yeah, uh, um, and then so what's what's next for you guys? Oh, you said uh, Ghost of Mars. Ghost of Mars. Ghost of Mars Ghost of is Mars. the next episode, right? That's his next movie. Wait, is next, there not? Yes. Oh, vampires. 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 That's vampires. right. Oh, okay. Vampires with uh, uh, David Ehrlich That's is our right. next episode. Hey. Yeah. Um. Yep. Uh, everyone should listen to uh from Gorley and Rust. With Gorley and Russ. And subscribe Jesus to their Christ. Patreon. Why did I say Relax, it's Oh, okay. it's okay. It's okay, Griffin. It, they're both prepping. <laughs> Griffin, here comes a recommendation. <laughs> Listen to with Gorley at Rust. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Uh, yeah, no. Uh, and uh, hey, guys. Hey, stay cool. Hey, yeah. yeah. Definitely and, do that. Hey, love's still on Netflix. Oh, that's right. That's right. Yep. Yep. Hashtag love on Netflix. I'm a big believer in continuing to plug uh, ended shows that are still on streaming services. Yes. Yes. And not in any sort of effort to bring them back or anything. No, just, just they still exist. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. They're good. Yeah. Yep. They're still there. They're yep. still there. Um, And thank you all for listening. Please remember to rate, review, and subscribe. Thank you to Marie Barty for our social media, uh, Pat Reynolds and Joe Bowen for our artwork, JJ. Birch and Nick Lariano for our research, AJ McKeon and Alex Barron for our editing, Liam Montgomery and the Great American Novel for our theme song. You can listen to their new album, Extremely Loud and Incredibly Online, wherever you find music online. I don't know what you kids do these days. Uh, next week, Vampires with Ehrlich, as we said, you can go to patreon.com slash blank check for blank check special features where you do franchise commentaries like, obviously, the Santa Claus trilogy the trilogy of films about tim allen murdering yeah, right. santa claus and uh living to to rue the day <laughs> right they keep on finding new clauses to fucking get him all mucked up in the works um uh what else to say i don't know go to go to blake is that for some real uh nerdy uh shit mm-hmm. uh and as always i do think we should now canonically accept as our inner blank check lore, that snake's tattoo goes all the way up into his butthole. Good. I'm glad. Thank, Thank you. you, Paul. Thank you, Paul. <laughs> Thank you. All right. Um, un- unimportant to this record, but just because I was talking about it, uh, Matt and Paul, this is the current state of the animatronic baby from Starman. I put it in the chat if you want to look at that. Oh, my God. Uh, it's one of the best things I've ever seen. Oh, my God. Um, it looks just like my newborn daughter. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my dear.
It's, it's <laughs> incredible. My dear. Yeah. Oh, my dear. There's, there's no better way to say it than my yeah. dear. Okay. <laughs> <clears throat>